We're living through one of those changes that historians will mark the end of one era and mark the beginning of another. T-E-T-C. The end times continue. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the End Times Continue Recording on this, the 9th of April. I am Dino, and you are... It is Easter. It is! It is and Easter. I am Ace. Happy Easter, everybody. Yes, happy Easter, everyone. Well, you'll be listening to this tomorrow, but happy Easter all the same. Yeah. Happy Easter, everyone. <laughs> yes, Ace, we have a guest today. All right. We do. We have a very special guest, a returning guest, in fact. Uh, Hunter, do you want to introduce yourself again uh, for people who might be introduced to you for the first time here? Of course. Hi, I'm Hunter. Uh, Twitter handle is Imminent Anarchy. Uh, I kind of do a lot of reading on Deleuze and some of the postmodernist and anarchist theory in general. And uh, I've been doing that in Los Angeles and been asked with you guys once, I think, last year, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I'm excited to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, we, we, right after we uh, got, uh, we did the first step with you, we were like, oh, well, we have to have you back. And I know, uh, Dean, uh, uh, we were, uh, we were talking about like doing another Deleuze episode, and there was no one we wanted to get on for Deleuze again. And we're talking about, uh, well, I'm, <laughs> we're going to be talking about some very interesting things uh, tonight. So I'm very excited. Likewise. Yeah, it's going to be great. With that um, being said, should I go ahead and start off? Hi. Well, you know what? Give me a I second. Listen, Dean, do you have anything? Uh, well, give me just yeah. a second because I need to do a test just real quick. I think I see a problem. And it might be nothing, but I just need about two Uh-oh. seconds. Oh, sorry. Nope, there was no problem. Okay. <laughs> My bad. Okay, so yes, Hunter, uh, if you would like to start us off. Be my pleasure. Okay. So Ace and Dean asked if I'd want to swing by and talk about Deleuze and specifically his and Guattari's the rhizome and re-territorialization. Now, I think it's probably easiest to start with the rise. Go ahead and get into it. Deleuze and his co-writer Felix Guattari first bring up the concept of the rhizome in the first chapter of their second volume of the two-part capitalism and schizophrenia. The volume is called A Thousand Plateaus, and this chapter is called Introduction Rhizome. In this chapter, Deleuze and Guattari set up the rhizome in contrast to the arborescent model, first of all addressing books, and saying that in contrast to most books, A Thousand Plateaus is written rhizomatically. So what does that mean? What is a rhizome, and what does it mean to be a, for a book to be written like a rhizome? Well, a rhizome is a kind of root. Ginger is kind of the easiest example to think about. And the thing about rhizomes is that they aren't structured like trees, where you have clear progression from roots, the trunk, and then you get to the branches, then you get to the leaves, everything's progressing very linearly. No, rhizomes don't function like that. There's no preferred direction that rhizomes grow at. There's no clear progression except expansion and development. Yet at the same time, it's not that the rhizome grows randomly. That's not it at all. Rather, rhizomes grow in a network kind of progression, and their structure is just that. It's not randomness that's structuring the growth of rhizome, but rather the actualization of particular intensities that are present along the structure of the root. So what does that mean? Well, first we have to think of the rhizome as always in external relationships with the soil, the climate, the water supply, the microorganisms that accumulate around it. Along with these are the genetic codes within the cells of the rhizome that are being turned off or on, they're grouping into activation or not. 
the way the rhizome grows and the progress of its structure isn't random, but it's just the pure actualization of virtual singularities along the intensive structure of the rhizome, which is booming with potential. These are potentialities that come to life not through chance, but in a kind of pleasant event of growth. The rhizome becoming soil and water, and the water and soil becoming the rhizome. As Deleuze and Guattari write, a rhizome has no beginning or end. It is always in the middle, between things, interbeing, intermeso. For Deleuze and Guattari, there are six principles and characteristics of the rhizome, the first two being connection and heterogeneity. They explain these two principles of the rhizome in linguistics, setting it up against Chomsky's model. And yes, it is that Noam Chomsky. They argue that Chomsky's model is like a tree, which plots a point, point S, and fixes an order in which you proceed by dichotomy. Our criticism, they write, these linguistic models is not that they are too abstract, but on the contrary, that they are not abstract enough, that they do not reach the abstract machine that connects a language to the semantic and pragmatic contents of statements, to the collective assemblages of enunciation, to a whole micropolitics of the social field. A rhizome ceaselessly establishes connections between semiotic chains, organizations of power, and circumstances relative to the arts, sciences, and social struggle. There is no language in itself, nor are there any linguistic universals only a throng of dialects, patois, slangs, and specialized language. There is no ideal speaker-listener any more than there is a homogenous linguistic community. There is no mother tongue, only a power takeover by a dominant language within a political multiplicity. Language stabilizes around a parish, a bishopric, a capital. It forms a bulb. It evolves by subterranean stems and flows along river valleys or train tracks. It is always possible to break a language down into internal structural elements an undertaking not fundamentally different from a search for roots. There is always something genealogical about a tree, but it is not a method for the people. A method of the rhizome type, on the contrary, can analyze language only by decentering it onto other dimensions and registers. A language is never closed upon itself, except as a function of impotence. Uh, the third principle of the rhizome is going to be... Now, they give a better little breakdown of this one in the next chapter, 19. 1914, One or Several Wolves, where they write that the multiplicity was created precisely in order to escape the abstract opposition between the multiple and the one, to escape dialectics, to succeed in conceiving the multiple in the pure state, to cease treating it as a numerical fragment of a lost unity or totality, or as the organic element of a unity or totality yet to come, and instead distinguish between different types of multiplicities. I think one of the examples we could skirt to would be the wolf pack, though I'm going to need everyone to drop the alpha beta bullshit that only applies when you throw a bunch of random wolves together in captivity. That's about as useful <laughs> as using prison life and abstract about human nature. No, when, when you think of the wolf pack in action and hunting together, they form this kind of assemblage. They're acting in this disjunctive but coordinating manner that gives rise to its own kind of being that is very actively coming together to take down the elk or whatever prey they're going for. But the concept of the multiplicity keeps us from taking that entity of the wolf pack from being a totalizing unity. Instead, the concept of the multiplicity calls us to examine it at its varying levels or, or it's a matter of regimes when we talk about a pack of wolves versus the individuals that compose it. There are souls to say two or three wolves that need to be related to either to come together to make a pack. Each individual wolf is its own entity, obviously, but there's a regime change of activity that arises when other external conditions come together, 
i.e. the other wolves in their vicinity with each other. Plicity is a principle of the rhizome in that we are not concerning ourselves with unifying totalities, but rather with the consideration of assemblages of these multiplicities and their regimes. Multiplicities are ultimately flat. You stack wolf packs next to wolf packs, individual wolves next to individual wolves. These different levels are going to be governed by different rules and conditions, constraints and potentialities, things that will be we will be different between what Deleuze and Guattari write as molar aggregates, wolf packs, or the molecular multiplicities, the individual wolf. Ultimately, multiplicity being a principle of the rhizome means that if we're if we think we found a totalized unity. To think rhizomatically, we should consider how the molecular flows underneath it have been constricted, organized, and obstructed to produce such. What coagulation of forces and factors are occurring at the interstitial level that is producing this molar aggregate and determining its movements? And finally, what is the line of flight that will subvert the entire enterprise? Principle four of the rhizome is of asignifying rupture. Now, the understanding here is that rhizomes can always be broken or shattered at a certain point, but then they'll start right back up again in a new direction, down a new line of flight. We could say that a lot of a rhizome is stratified or territorialized already and across certain lines and dimensions of its structure. But at the same time, it is also deterritorialized in other directions. Like before, there are always parts of the rhizome becoming water and soil and the water and soil becoming the rhizome. They go on to write, you may make a rupture, draw a line of flight, yet there is still a danger that you will re-encounter organisms that restratify everything, formations that restore power to a signifier, attribution that reconstitute a subject, anything like Oedipal resurgences to fascist concretions. Groups and individuals contain microfascism, microfascism just waiting to crystallize. Yes, couchgrass is a rhizome. Good and bad are only the products of active and temporary selection, which must be renewed. Now, we have a great moment to touch on re-territorialization here because they go into that in the rhizome chapter pretty well. And it's nice because they use what is one of Deleuze's favorite examples, the wasp and the orchid. They write, how can movements of deterritorialization de and process of re-territorialization not be relative, always connected, caught up in one the orchid deterritorializes by forming an image, a tracing of a wasp, but the wasp reterritorializes on that image. The wasp is nevertheless deterritorialized, becoming a piece of orchid's reproductive apparatus, but it reterritorializes the orchid by transporting its pollen. Wasp and orchid as heterogeneous elements form. Now, some may go and say, this is imitation, right? The, the orchid is imitating the wasp and vice versa. But to them, this is not the case. It's not imitation, but a capture of code, surplus value of code, an increase in valence, a veritable becoming, a becoming wasp of the orchid and a becoming orchid of the wasp. Each of these becomings brings about the deterioration of one term and the re-territorialization of the other. The two becomings in link and form relays in a circulation of intensities pushing the deterioration ever further. Now to the last two principles of the rhizome. Principles five and six are cartography and decalculation. They're going to tell us on the first account that a rhizome is a map and not a tracing. They write, make a map, not a tracing. The orchid does not reproduce the tracing of the wasp. It forms a map with the wasp in a rhizome. What distinguishes the map from the tracing is that that is entirely oriented toward an experimentation in contact with the real. 
The map is open and connectable, connectable in all of its dimensions. It's detachable, reversible, susceptible to constant modification. It can be torn, reversed, adapted to any kind of mounting, reworked by an individual, group, or social formation. It can be drawn on a wall, conceived of as a work of art, constructed as a political action, or as a meditation. Perhaps one of the most important characteristics of the rhizome is that it always has multiple entryways. In this way, the burrow is an animal rhizome and sometimes maintains a clear distinction between the line of flight as passageway and storage or living strata, i.e. the muskrat. A map has multiple entryways as opposed to the tracing, which always comes back to the same. The map has to do with performance, whereas the tracing always involves an alleged competence. So I think I'm going to go and try and outpost modern these two here and explain the difference between tracing and mapping with, old, with this entire write-up. I think you can think of tracing as if you were to transcribe this entire explication yourself. If you were to, for example, you would notice how I've emphasized several phrases or terminologies repeatedly. I've added redundancy to this explica explication so that I can make what is kind of fuzzy more concrete. For you would quickly find, if you looked up the quotes I've given, that I've been incredibly scrupulous in my editing of them because I'm trying to cut out concepts from a book that's intentionally resistant to that. Honestly, some of you would be shocked how reductive these quotes are in context of the work, but that's because I'm very intentionally cutting them out because I'm trying to be exceptionally precise. If you were to take this tracing and put it up against things that match exactly, well, you may not get a lot out of it because it's reductive because I've cut a lot out because I've blocked its potentialities, right? But on the other hand, let's say you listen to this podcast and a couple things caught your attention and you know you kind of forget some of the others step across the next couple of days. Maybe then you thought about the wasp and the orchid and you kind of thought, hmm, well, I could kind of see that with like the anteater, right? It's, it's like becoming an ant colony in a weird way. Or maybe you thought about the wolf pack and, you know, you thought... I feel like maybe he should have picked an, something else, like another example, like a like a school of fish, you know, or or a flock of geese, because that's a that's a more consistent like organizational form to think, think about shape wise, and you know the wolf pack is kind of like all over the place everywhere. Hell, maybe maybe you should have used ants in general. I mean, the whole is kind of its own entity working on its own dynamics at the same time. If most of the colony is destroyed, you just need to get around and start it all back up again. By the way, it's one of the examples I didn't give from Deleuze and Guattari when talking about the rhizome. But you're making a map. You're taking this intensive structure I'm giving you in thought, and you're plugging into other concepts that's producing further connections, concepts, and contexts that open up how these concepts work in connection. This is why Deleuze and Guattari say, the map has to do with performance, whereas the tracing always involves an alleged competence. Because tracing, you put it next to everything and say why everything is wrong compared to the tracing. Whereas with the map, you're becoming acquainted to the potentials that thought that that concept can open and the new dimensions it gives. Point. Before I leave this, uh, that when they mentioned decalcomania, they're referring to the process of transferring designs from paper onto glass or porcelain. So basically the same principle as like a fake tattoo. You can take the map, the rhizome, and just throw it onto something. You're not tracing the differences between an original and something else. You're actively producing something new. 
if you want to look for like a pretty decent example of this in art, I actually was looking and uh, if you look at, uh, if you pull up uh, Lady Gaga's art pop cover <laughs> album, um, it's done by Jeff Koons. And I think that it really captures the the same thing, the, the, the idea. There are like four, three or four different pieces being broken and stacked aside and on top of each other. And I don't know, I think it's a pretty good example if you're looking for art, what they're talking about in mapping. Now, let's go ahead and kind of pull things together. Um, Deleuze and Guattari are going to write, the important point is that the root tree and the canal rhizome are not those models. The first operates as a transcendent model and tracing even if, it's in, even if it engenders its own escapes. The second operates as an imminent process that overturns the model and outlines the map, even if it constitutes its own hierarchies even if it gives rise to a given moment in history, still less of this or that category of thought. It is a question of a model that is perpetually in construction or collapsing, and of a process that's perpetually prolonging itself, breaking off and st starting up again. No, this is not a new dualism. We employ a dualism of models only in order to arrive at the process that challenges all models. Each time, mental correctives are necessary to undo the dualism we have no wish to construct, but rather which we must pass. Arrive at the magical for, for, formula we all seek. Pluralism equals monism. Via all the dualisms that are the enemy, an entirely necessary, necessary enemy, the furniture we are forever rearranging. This is why they can say, a new rhizome may form in the heart of a tree, the hollow of a root, the crook of a branch, or else it is a microscopic element of the root tree, a radical that gets rhizome production going. Though they also say that there are knots of arbor arborescence in rhizomes and rhizomatic offshoots and roots. Through all this, we're called to examine things through these dimensions, these non-exclusive concepts that are con constantly at work in how we can approach the world in all manner of thought. And at this point, I'm going to come up for air. And Ace and Dean, you can tell me if we're all good. <laughs> uh, yeah i remember when i read i remember when i read um this section in uh um the book um that dealt specifically on the rhizome and i remember i had to read it like 10 times before i kind of understood what they were saying yeah uh, <laughs> I, I remember that that well so English, you don't immediately get it it's okay we're gonna go through it uh, uh, it's fine yeah uh, Exactly. No, if you like, if yeah. like, this is one of those areas where you need to be like Barbosa. How do you get to a place that can't be found? You got to get good and lost. You know, if, if, yeah, if right, someone's yeah. saying this is totally exactly. clear, I'd be like, um, I'm worried. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. This is something yeah. that, um, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, this is actually, you know what? Give me a second. Let me turn no, off this wait. VPN because we have a storm right now and it's going to be interrupting the internet from the tower. It's wireless to this house. So let me okay. turn off the VPN, and if I drop from the call, I'll, I'll rejoin immediately. And it appears the, um... that I did not end up dropping. Okay, uh, well, I was going to say, one of the things that... This is something that Ace and I spoke about um, quite a bit. Uh, the I can't remember. How long ago was it, Ace? Do you remember? It was like almost two years ago, I think, at this point. Yeah, it was a it was a while back, but we sat down and Ace walked me through this uh, this this concept, and it blew my mind because there are there were if you Google if you if you Google these concepts uh, this, the concept of the rhizome in particular, and 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 especially in connection with the lose, there's a lot of illustration of of what mm -hmm. it looks like, 
and, and, and at least sort of how you can visualize it. And, and, and it always looks to me like um, neural pathways. If you've ever seen illustrations of, of like neurons, it always kind of appeared that way to me at least. And I'm wondering what, what are some visualizations that people like, like just to start kind of on a, on a very sort of basic level, what are some visualizations that people can imagine when we're talking about a rhizome? It's, it's kind of a theory of everything in a way. So, so what are some visualizations that people can come up with for that? I I'm throwing this one off the top of my head, you know, like, like ginger, I find cold in the sense that it's like very bulky, but I think it's like hard to apply that. I, and maybe I'm wrong in thinking this one, but I almost like a, like if you were to think of a room that was just filled with like spiders webs, you know, in the sense that they're all kind of disparately connected that and works, the spiders yeah. are connected mm-hmm. at different other points and it's, and you can kind of go through any, and there's, and you can cut out, you know, you can in theory, you know, cut some and pull and be like, oh, this is, you know, you'd be removing the connections and everything. But I guess it would almost be like that kind of process. And you can theoretically identify. Constantly evolving. Right. And you can theoretically identify one of the spider's webs, but it's kind of difficult to parse it apart from the other webs supporting it that it's attached to. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a good idea. Also, something you said uh, near the end of that, we're kind of like how like all arborescent structures, you can find like rhizomatic structures within those and kind of like vice versa. Um, I think it's really interesting, too, because it's like if you were like uh, so for listeners, if you Google like just a visual illustration of a rhizome that actually may be somewhat helpful, like during this episode. Um, but if you were to, uh, so Hunter, like, for example, if you were to, like, pinpoint a specific spot on a rhizome, right, and you, like, focused in on it. You would, in some sense, lose the rhizome. Do you know what I mean? You would, in some yeah. sense, lose the whole thing. Uh, and then it would just look like it, it might resemble an arborescent structure, like a very linear progression um, when you hyper-focus on one aspect. Um, and I find that's really interesting. because I, I find so many times people hyper-focus on like one aspect of it, just anything, and they'll lose the whole concept uh, it's kind of they're hyper focusing on one thing when it's not and when in reality it's uh, interconnected to your point it's kind of the difference between identifying a a like a a food web like a food map and a particular species uh position in with like relative to other particular species in a food chain like there, there's a, there's a, there's, mm-hmm. you have a food chain, right? And it's this animal eats that animal, eats that animal, eats that animal, eats that plant mm. usually. Right. But the reality of those, um, of, of those ecological systems is, is much more complex than that because there are other animals that eat every other one of those other animals and other animals that eat the plants and the mm. plants eat shit too. Right. So like you have to, <laughs> you have to expand yeah. and, and yeah. take kind of a 5,000 foot view or you don't really understand the ecology, uh, right. 50,000 foot. Well, view. Yeah. It's also like, you know, on, on when you're walking and you're like on earth, it can seem linear. It can seem like almost flat right? mm-hmm. you're just walking in a straight line but uh and it doesn't appear or it'll be completely obvious or intuitive to you that the world is round unless you're like studying the position of the stars and like the you know the curvature of like the the moon or the sun going down you know stuff like mm-hmm. that unless you uh, you know 
unless you if you have no knowledge of like ice or like what the earth looks like it can appear flat but in reality it is much more than of just a linear flat structure right right and, and the, it, that's not a perfect analogy but it kind of gets at a lot of these things that may appear when you like hyper focus on them they may appear fairly similar or fairly uh, like linear for example um but they may have a very many like interconnected that are not immediately apparent um, when you when you're just like hyper focusing on one thing. Hundred percent, yeah, and, and I mean, like, it's also you know with it being a concept that's very that's very much dealing with like the interstitial, you know, mm-hmm. it's it, it it that's part of the you know. Deleuze's work in general, it's looking at what is obscure unless you're really pulling back and kind of you're jumping across levels to look at it i feel because right. his whole point is that you know difference is what's active here but you know, <laughs> yes. we we only perceive the representation most of the time until right. you know it becomes blatantly obvious it's the difference that's really before us <laughs> right right so like uh for example I, I mean i think he goes over this indifference and repetition which we we may cover on a different episode but that's i think that's uh, also a, a fantastic work um uh, but like, like I think he talks about like when he's talking about like uh, rhizomes and like what I think I I I don't remember I I may be confusing his concepts or like jumbling them together. But I I, if I specifically remember like when he's talking about like things that uh, things that exist that we talk about like a computer or something right or something like that some type of mechanism or technology. Uh, we may think of it as, you know, a unified thing, but really it's a representation almost of other pieces and parts that are a part of other things that are not yet realized or actualized. It's, mm. it's a difference uh, that, you know, it's this thing that we repeat, but, you know, within every repetition, there's some type of difference as well. Yeah, entirely, entirely. You know, there are, it's either minor, minute differences or, or, mm-hmm. or you know, it's just, it's the difference in itself. And then it's right. really, you know, and then when they get to the assemblages, that's the whole point, too, is that, you know, you have a species of animal. Every animal is individually itself and yes. individually unique. The question is always, well, oh, you can bring it down into the into the group but there are going to be those you know particular on the margins if you want to think like genetically or something that start to undermine the the uh how defined the group is right the how defined the identity of that group is and there's always that kind of side that's going to the line of flight that's going that that is pushing it into a new direction and it's like will that win at this time or not or will it ever win Right. It almost seems to me like anti-Platonist uh, uh, also view as well, right? Because, you know, with, with a Platonist view, it's like you have all of these like fixed forms. Mm-hmm. And uh, Deleuze is very much saying that in, in, in some sense, it's like uh, uh, Heraclitian, where it's like, you know, the only thing that's constant is really change in this sense. And you're, you, the idea of a fixed form is uh, kind of just like illusory. Yeah, well, I mean, one of his one of his big um, tasks tasks in philosophy was to invert platonism or to create uh-huh. a new inversion of platonism because he took that from nietzsche i think and so he does have an essay it's it's not as well read it's pretty early i think you can find it in um the logic of sense but he the essay is basically um uh subverting plato inverting plato and mm. through it he does it through the simulacrum Oh. the simulacrum the sophist 
is mm-hmm. actually that who is that which allows the whole understanding that everything's unique. The you know whereas Plato is tr- constantly trying to say you know the, the the sophist is that who imitates knowledge. The point of Deleuze is that actually that's the one who sets the that's who sets the ground if there is any ground to be set or makes everything recast in the sense that you have to take everything individually because they scramble the codes they make it impossible to just you know. Um, Socrates from Fist. Right. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And it's also like, um, it, that's really interesting too, because like a, a lot of times when I'm interacting with people, right, uh, there's so many times when I'm like, when I'm interacting with someone, and it doesn't matter, I'm, I'm not going to give them the specific arguments they make, but like oftentimes they'll fall back on just or aggregates uh, for mm. their arguments, like when they're they're making a case uh, it's like it's really and i think this is kind of like you know i consider myself more of a, an individualist uh, so it's like whenever i see someone making some type of like collectivist argument or an argument about you know a general aggregate of people or like you know a certain group of people think this way or they do this it's always so very foreign to me and mm. i it, it's interesting to me that i think that i i, I don't know I, i'm not going to get into the psychology of like why they do this but i think it's interesting that so many people fall back on to aggregates i assume it's just because of ease of use right it's if you just assume that the aggregate is the the aggregate is the truth or like uh, the correct um uh, view for anything then you're just going to like it, it's a very easy view in life to take well it's very simple oh, for sure and yeah. the human brain loves it the human brain loves to categorize right. and yeah. and just based yeah. on pattern recognition all stuff individualism right. in the sense that you're describing it which with, with which i also identify is difficult because it forces you yeah. to um it forces you to sort of terminate what your brain, what your psychology uh, evolutionarily wants to do, which is recognize a pattern, put it in a box, categorize it. Now you know it. Like that's that's what your brain right. wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All the heuristics that we've got build up either from experience or just from past down, or like you know uh, repeating other people's habits and stuff right, it, right. You know, it all builds up into those generalizations and you know i think it's, it's really obvious to see that sometime sometimes i think when you find people who you know i'm not i'm not the biggest debate watcher but, but <laughs> uh-huh. there's sort of watch I, I think i was like watching destiny re- recently and he was talking to i think his pearly things who's horrible but she kept saying why you keep asking these like nonsense questions and what you realize is that no he's just he's showing how your generalizations are stupid or or how they don't right. cover what they're supposed to cover and mm-hmm. so if you can show in like a decent example how the generalization falls apart and it's not it's not you're not you're not playing games you're 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 forcing them to then have to if they want to hold on to that generalization, they have to build more rules. And yes, then right. what ends up happening, you end up into the whole problem of deductive logic in the sense that like you can make as many rules as you can, but you're going to do that to infinity to try and get it. And you're going to look back at what you're able to save. And then you're like, well, that wasn't worth it at all. Yeah. Well, you're going to start, right. you're going to start poking so many holes in what was supposed to be axiomatic that it, mm-hmm. the, the number of, Jesus, the, you hear that fucking thunder? The, uh, the, the, the uh, exceptions can swallow the rule. This is the thing that um, th- th- that people have run into with. I mean, I mean, for example, 
you know, they say you're not allowed to... Bring, I'm going to bring this down to my stupid level for a second. Um, uh, they say you're not allowed to bring hearsay into court, right? Well, you are. There's like 30 exceptions to that rule. <laughs> like, like you, you, you absolutely can. <laughs> yeah. And for just about any given piece of hearsay, yeah. you can find a way to get it in. So the... the the, uh, the, the the exceptions, you run into a situation when you're making generalizations uh, where the edge case, someone presents an edge case, and I've seen it argued that way too, where it's like, why are you asking ridiculous questions or why are you bringing up these unlikely scenarios? And it's like, because the unlikely scenario is what breaks your rule. That's what that's what strains yeah, right. your logic to the point of breaking. So you have yeah. to fix it or or you can just be okay with the fact that your rule is wrong. It doesn't it doesn't encompass the edge case. And that's that's fine if you want to be okay with that, but you have to recognize it at the very least. I'm sorry. You just got me thinking about that a little bit. <laughs> oh no, but that's no that's 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 a fair Point. And that's the, you know, at the end of the day, it, it ends up showing who's actually like thought critically of their positions and tries to like critically approach their ethics, their political views mm-hmm. and stuff. That's where it becomes clear because either, you know, you end up having people who are who put a lot of discernibility, who put a lot of discern that or they or they've kind of just taken what has been given to them or easiest things around them to hold on to and hold as like the truth which i hate that word yeah right (laughs) that's like uh, common sense to me when people say well it's just Uh, common sense well it's like oh well uh it's like oh i'm sure you have a view of what is common sense but almost no one very few people ever share what you view as common Uh, yeah i mean a common sense would dictate that the earth is flat and the sun revolves around it like that's what common sense would dictate you have to get to a level of specialization and expertise to break that Yeah, do you, do you think we're walking on a ball or something? We can all see the world is flat. Come yeah, on. obviously. If you just look, it's flat. Yeah, yeah there's a. It's it, are we stumbling in? Do what? Are we stumbling into the dem- academia? I feel like we're walking. Yeah. Right, right, right. But that's uh, the yeah, that's the um, thing that I'm that, that to... yeah. I agree. I, I was just gonna say I agree. I I. Uh, that that concept that the 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 sort of ease of categorization causes problems if you're trying to think on an individual level. Now, what were you saying, Ace? I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, I was just going to say, you know, um, going back to like you know the rise on the the the, um, the analogy of the map is really interesting, right? Because when you uh, if you just look at a map, for example, I think I think Deleuze uses this example. Maybe I heard someone use this example to explain Deleuze. I don't remember exactly, mm-hmm. but I think he uses the example of the map. And you look at the map and like a map of a city, right? And you look at the map of the city, and there's no real like start or end to it when you look mm-hmm. at the map. The map it just yes, there, there is the city. The map of the city just is, but there's no real start or like beginning or entrance uh, to into the city. There are just like way there are ways in and ways out, but there are no like you know. There's no linear progression that you must start here and it must end here. Right? Sort of contrasted. Like some, uh, a, a theological. Sort of contrasted yeah. against a maze. Where like with a maze, you have a starting point and then you right. have paths, possible paths, and then you have an ending point, And there's one one way to get through it. Right. With the, with what you're the describing. Po- the po- right, the possible paths are just yeah, dead end. Yeah, that's right. Great, that's a great. That's a good example. Yeah, that's really tracing, good. Yeah. 
But yeah, I, I find that really interesting too, for the reason that uh, I, I, I find the map example really helpful. And the maze example is actually a really, really good contrast. I'm glad you, I'm glad you uh, came yeah. up with that one. Uh, um, because, uh, you know, it, it really is like about this, like uh, when you think like, so here's a good, here's a good um, question or a good like topic, I think to bring up, how would you describe like thinking Hunter, how would you describe like, thinking rhizomatically versus thinking arborescent dude right? i was going to i was gonna fucking ask this bro <laughs> i was gonna ask that exact question yes no it's perfect i'm so glad you did because i was gonna have a harder time asking it than you just did <laughs> i love that hmm. you know i think i think you know, I would say that if, if we're going to take a strict view of what they would say, like any time you were maybe looking for, you were going to test an experiment, it'd be mm-hmm. fairly arborescent in the sense that, you know, you start out with this these sets of materials, you have a process mm-hmm. that you want to run it through and you want to see your goal is say, you know, we'll go with al- we'll go alchemical with it. You want to turn lead into gold. Well, you have your starting point, you have your end point, and then it's just the matter of you determining the process from a to z right um in terms of rhizomatically i think that this would kind of go with, i've heard people mention this scout mentality uh recently in terms of like how people think but like you'd be looking at someone who's like okay well i, I want to i want to make an effect in my city or i want to mm-hmm understand how my city is the traffic flows in my of my city are working well you you know you could more or less just pick any point you could you know go drive around a number of the big roads figuring out you know okay the, around this time this is how how big, bad traffic is around this place that's when traffic is better um the, these different routes you would approach in a way of trying to really burrow into the subject itself rather than mm-hmm. determining where the subject should be right rather okay, than expecting yes. that this is like your end goal it's more so of a understanding of cons- Almost like a discovery. How- yeah yeah in which it's not you're not trying to go for an exact end you're going for a comprehension of the different components that are erupting in this in this event this phenomenon that you were interested in it's one of those right okay, thinking yes. about that question I, I i one of the things that sticks in my head with regard to that idea of thinking rhizomatically is the thing that eigen complains about all the time which is everything i hate is monocausal right like this this <laughs> yeah. I, yeah this yeah. idea that like like uh there i can identify a problem and that is the problem where if you're if you're Thanks actually Obama. yeah right exactly thanks Obama exactly if you're whereas I would I would I mean for me it feels more at least rhizomatic to be thinking in terms of in terms of second third fourth fifth order effects from these other ancillary causes that could be causing a thing there might be some influence on this thing from this other thing who knows like trying to I trying to take the the 50,000 foot view and identify everything that might possibly interact with this problem because the problem is not monocausal. Nothing is, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, 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 and yeah. I, I, that's, no. that's sort of what sticks in my head when thinking about that. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's a perfect way to, to approach it because it's not, 
you're not tr- because you know if you were trying to identify like the mono cause then you're going to run into so many instances where well maybe this side of this effect that you don't want maybe this is actually being impacting way more but it's a minor side so you cut that out so then you're mm-hmm. actually cutting your own effects out while you're trying to be monocausal because you're reducing the problem over and over until there's a little you know the actual effects that you were trying to go for you're only dealing with you know a small percentage of them it's almost like you're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like the, all the things that don't fit, you're kind of like ignoring those and only focusing on the things that you want to like, that are, that you, that are coming from one cause and you're blocking kind of everything else out. And you're, uh, then you're kind of like forcing an arborescent, uh, like uh, style of thinking there. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I wanted to ask, 100%. um, I wanted to ask what the, just as a, as a, because I'm a dick. Um, <laughs> it's really more of like a, like a practicality thing. We, we, we're talking about this, 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 this thing conceptually, right? The, the rhizomatic sort of structure mm-hmm. that it makes sense that, that most things. Okay. I, I shouldn't say that. I will say this. What can we apply this to in order to understand it better? The, this conceiving of, a given thing rhizomatically as opposed to uh, uh, what are you saying is opposed, opposed to that arborescently. Um, yeah. Like yeah. tree. Right. What, the what, model of the tree. Yeah. Right. What, what can we, I, I, cause for me, I'll just say off offhand for me, I think of like social interaction this way or social problems or, or social goods mm-hmm. this way. What, what are some things we can think about rhizomatically that will help us to understand them and their function better and like how they work and how they occur. So I would, I think, uh, I like in terms of like what we could think of first, I think kind of juxtapose like open source projects versus corporate R&D, mm. right? So like open source, you got these forums and these uh, different sites where you have a lot of these people who are coming together to build drones, right? They're hobbyists. And so one guy's like, oh, this and I'm gonna put you know this I'm gonna I wanted to fly this way so he'll do something like that he'll put his his schematics online and then someone else takes it and adds it on you know that's kind of a rhizomatic mm-hmm. approach to innovation and to development whereas in the corporate R and D you have a okay we need to get a drug out for this these are these are the specific kind of drugs that we want to make these are the ones that you know this disease is what needs to be resolved or needs to be medicated and the process they then work backwards from there to you know build this what is a tree here is where you know you have the researchers down here you have the actual people working in the lab up here who are you know doing the test, those who are running the test that I would say that's kind of, that would be one example I think that you could kind of think of as rhizomatic organization and thinking as compared mm-hmm. to the arborescent. Did that help? Oh yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking of things. I was just I was basically just yeah. asking like, what's what what are things that we can apply this to? Like, because my concern is that people become very uh, turned off by, um. And I know this because I'm kind of sensitive to this as well. People, be, people become turned off by things that are I, too much ideas, right? People become turned off by stuff that's yeah, like, well, yeah. this is this is this is all theoretical. How does this apply to my life? How can I apply this? 
And that's that's kind of what I was trying to drill down on is like there are things that you can think about in these terms that make them make more sense than otherwise. Um, which is why I brought up things like social sort of uh, social ideas and, and social contagion, other things that operate in a similar way. Um, and if you think about them resomatically, they make more sense. It becomes it becomes yeah. actively becomes Means less confusing. Yeah, right. There's also the the factor of like going back to like um, what you said earlier, Hunter, with like a rhizome. Um, Sort of like the connectivity of it, right? Like uh, with it, when we're talking about like an arborescent structure, we mean like a tree. So like you have the root, you start at the root system, and then it, it has a you know a, a tilt where you know you have the beginning, and then it it has an end point, right? Um, mm-hmm. at, at, at a tree. Um, some of the ways I've heard uh, the rhizome described is where with a tree you have you know you have a beginning and then you have an end. Where thinking about a, a rhizome, it's it's merely just. And then, and then, and then, and yeah. then, and then, you know, that, that sort of thing mm-hmm. where, cause like, if you took, if you, took, uh, if you look at a rhizome and, and if you look at a visual, what would like a visual construction of what a rhizome kind of would look like or looks like, um, there really, there's no, you can make, you can have a starting point where you say, okay, I'm going to start here and then like, you know, uh, you know, track the rhizome, but there is no official starting point. So when, when we're talking about like social interaction, for example, right. Or an, another great example, this is actually forking like technology, right. Like with mm-hmm. open source, uh, when you fork some type of technology, like some sort of program or something, the original program still exists, but a new offshoot might also exist too. Mm-hmm. So like with, with the, the rhizome, right. If, if you would like, uh, you know, uh, if one of the connections severs, a new connection might grow out of that and then connect to a completely different part of the rhizome. Um, and I, I think that's an interesting way to think about it as well, specifically with like it, when, when you, whenever you have some type of like, it, this could be like anything from like, uh, in culture where you have certain like subgroups or something that split off, right. Or certain like mm-hmm. denominations of religion that split off. You can kind of like see how, uh, if you look at them internally, they might look very arborist, but when you look at it from like a macro perspective, you can kind of see like the, uh, the rhizomatic like, uh, movements sort of. Oh, Another- sure. And like, I think you could probably, Ooh, you go, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just one thing that for me comes to mind because I've been involved in different both. But you know, you talk, you could think of like uh, Leninism and a lot of your Marxist groups. Mm-hmm. They're arborescent, or they form themselves arborescently. Whereas you know, you with a lot of anarchists, or you're more, you know, um, you know, it ends up becoming riots or something like that. They're, they're acting. They're very much more rhizomatic in the sense that, like, you know, that people start on a march and then. A couple, you know, start moving in different ways to go in a different direction. All of a sudden, they're get, you know, the cops are coming, mm-hmm. so they all, you know, um, kind of flesh out, but then converge again, in, coming at the cops from different areas. That I would say that's kind of that kind of again gives that kind of perspective where it's the flexibility of the rhizome in the sense that it's constantly able to, it's it's fluid, it's. M- Movement's fluid. It's not being constrained to this, you know, like the tree, which has this deep, um, this very deep structure to its genetics and stuff. That mm-hmm. it will go up like that. Okay, maybe it'll curve a little differently if there's a rock in the way. But you know, the tree is going to grow straight. And whereas right. the rhizome, it's 
you know, it's dependent upon the external, it's, it's almost this pure externality, right? It's engaged completely with the external factors that it's existing in. And right. that's going to be the determination of how does the rhizome look after yeah. the fact. Every, every rhizome is going to look a little different, right? You're not going to mm. see like a replication between any single one of them. Uh, like they could go in like, you know, you know, one point of the rhizome on what uh, if you're looking at two different rhizomes uh, and you look at like the, the you know, saying the center is kind of wrong. But, you know, generally speaking, if you look at like the middle of what you can what you've constructed as this rhizome, uh, it might look completely different than another rhizome. Mm. Uh, and so it doesn't follow like the set path. Right. It, it's sort of like it routes around. And I think that is also um um, that can be applied to a lot of things. And you specifically said like anarchist groups and stuff versus like, you know, Marxist Leninist groups. Um, I, I think for a lot of people and I, this, when I first read, uh, when I first uh, read about the rhizome, one of my first thoughts about what was, a, what was a rhizome uh, was uh, decentralized markets. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of my first, and obviously, you know, I, I, I came at it from that sort of like economic lens, but that was one of the first things that kind of like, popped into my head when I first read about the when you were first you say that there's I I, I was just gonna say to back that actually up a little bit when you were first telling me about this it reminded me of uh decentralized networks the 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 way that decentralized networks mesh networks things like that function whereby you can you can you can cut off one chunk of it but it will route around automatically there's no there you, there's no way to right. kill it because it is entirely um it's a it's like a spider web it's it's all connected to each other um that's that's i say that to say mm-hmm. it's what I, the first thing i thought of when you told me about this was very similar <laughs> yeah yeah no, I think I think that's a I think that's a fair way to look at it because especially when you're looking at markets like that, they are connecting at various points, especially now with the internet or whatever. Yes, you know, internet and transport being what it is, you know, the connections of what makes a market today is you know, you're talking about markets and market market networks on top of market networks, etc. That are crashing through one another. It, a lot of it is rhizomatically. The question becomes, okay, where are the institutionalizations? You know, where's the right. arborescence in that structure? Because I think, you know, with them, like they're saying, you know, they're not trying to make a new duality. Instead, it's like, you know, at one point I think they say, hey, if if you got a if you got an arborescent that you want to keep going, smack a rhizome on it and they'll start going, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll start moving again. Because there is, you know, there's the idea that the arborescent, you know, there may have a function there. There may be use there. But right. if you want to get, if you want to make sure that it maintains that use, you got to, it has to have this ability to renew itself. It's got to be able to break the mold of itself at somewhere, somehow. Right. What you just said. No, that, that makes sense. What you just said made me think of something. Um, and this is, this is, I know it's annoying, but it's how I think. People say something and then it, made, it immediately makes me think of something I know exists. Um, you said if you have an arborescent, stru- <laughs> you said if you have an arborescent structure and you want it to, and you want to make it function, slap a rhizome on it. It reminds me of the way that, and this is going to seem out of left field, but I think it's an application of what you just said, even maybe unknowingly. Toyota vehicles are overbuilt, and they function; they're very, very reliable. Okay. And part of the reason that they have this repu- the, this reputation is that they have a, a culture at the company whereby anyone, even anyone on the on the on the floor 
bolting a fucking hinge to the frame can identify and bring to their higher ups a problem that they see in the design. So like this, mm-hmm. this, this hinge is not going to work long term. This is going to need to be replaced. This is going to need to be fixed. This, this, uh, or, or, you know, we, we need to, be, we need to beef up the, the, the front suspension because this isn't going to carry the weight of this motor we're putting in it. Whatever it is, anybody can, can bring that problem up, talk about it and, 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 and they can see if it's actually a problem. They can debate it. They can do other things. That seems very much like an application of what you were saying, which is like slap a rhizomatic structure onto this hierarchical structure, and it works better. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, yeah, no, it, it just I, made know, me I, think I, of I, that. That's a great one. No, I love that because I think you know that's why i argue that there are other that you know a lot of management culture comes down to their topics like synergy or maybe even now the dei stuff is that there's management culture is constantly looking at ways to try and beat the arborescent limitations of their corporation they're trying to find ways to 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 keep the life going and so that sounds like a great that they can figure something out right with that one by bring by saying okay we you can you get the structure of like of hey, give me an idea that's new and maybe it will work and maybe you'll get compensated for. That's actually that is perfectly working then, like a very corporate way. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bastardization because like it, it is very corporate, but I I, I see it as kind mm-hmm. of an application of that thinking where it's like, well, if we allow basically if we basically allow people to have freedom in this area, it will make things better in that area and and. It it has. I mean, that is what is that's what is credited with why Toyota vehicles are so robust and reliable is that the that any problem that anyone sees gets brought up. Um, people people aren't forced to kind of and bite their tongue. And this is a super easy like uh, uh, I, maybe stretch to make, and I don't know how applica- uh, applicable it is because it, it might be a bastardization. But it, I also think of like. Um, uh, societies or like states that are highly tyrannical tend to do uh, less well, uh, let's say. Uh, and whereas um, society, like societies that are still very like are like, you know, they have states they are still authoritarian. Um, the ones that do embrace more like liberal markets and liberal values tend to do better than ones that do not. And I, I kind of wonder if that is sort of a, like an, a sort of example of that, where you take some amount of, rhizomatic structure in your arborescent structure to make it run oh i i I would 100 percent agree with that i you know i think the the issue for the dictator or who or the party at any point with that Mm -hmm. is just you know it's when you introduce the rhizome it's you know like they say it could end up growing up in the hollow of the tree so you know when you look at the collapses of the soviet and the soviet Mm -hmm. bloc the argument could be male the trees had been kept off of the rhizome so long that when they finally did throw a rhizome on it, it it started to just eat away the tree. It was yeah, it was right. it's right. the yeah, rhizome exactly. can function like kudzu, where it just starts to choke out the trees. Mm-hmm. It's it's the 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 freedom of of that kind of structure becomes infectious and it and it and it starts to take mm-hmm. over. Um Right. It, it's yeah, it's like a double edged sword, right? Like well, uh, you know, a high level state it can become so tactical that it collapses in on itself, uh, you know, uh, 
but if it gives its if it gives its people too much freedom, then the state itself will also collapse. So the, the, from the eyes of the tyrant, it's it really is this you know uh, balance they have to try to strike, I guess. Well, and I think you could say that's been like the if I, I guess I think you'd say that's been the experience of China since you know mm-hmm. the late two thousands because I think every three to four years I read an article of how they have a new kind of movement amongst the depressing middle class. I think it was called Life Flat, where like they where you had a group of like you know people from their mid thirties below who are like I won't be able to afford a house, so you know I'll just work to make sure that I can pay my rent and. You know, otherwise, that's I don't care. And, mm-hmm. and I think stuff like that. And then, you know, in certain ways, you see that again, too. I think you'd say that you see that with like the beat generation in the US and their effect back in the 50s and 60s is that, you know, you end up at, you, you need the markets, you need the rhizomes. At the same mm-hmm. time, there's always, you know, how will it spread? You can't really control that. Or, you know, you right. have to adopt the the most intense surveillance state that has ever existed in the history of the world to try and, mo- you know, <laughs> yeah, to it, you don't yes. want. <laughs> yeah. And now we're trying to ban TikTok. And they, well, that's what they're, just, I was uh, about to say, <laughs> it's exactly what they're doing with the restrict act. The, the, that is the exact same mechanism at work. You have this, you have this, I think the, probably the best example of a rhizomatic structure that we've ever conceived of or, 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 or ever invented the internet. And then you, you take this, you yes. take the, at least the social connections and, and the way that people use the internet. It, it itself is extremely hierarchical, but the, the, as far as people interact with it, it's incredibly rhizomatic. And if you, if you take that structure and you, you, you try to control it, that's, you just said you have to enact the, the the worst surveillance state that the world's ever seen. That's what the Restrict Act does. It's, it's, we can ban any technology and watch to see if you're using it in the interest of national security. And that that it's it's a it's a it's it's exactly that. It's trying to rein in this level of freedom that's been given to people. And it, it it's well, I mean, it's not going to work, but they they're going to try. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not even sure. You'll have to tell me more about that at some point because I've not kept up with that, though I've seen it obviously in the news. But it's not been with Lent being the case being going on. I haven't been as focused on <laughs> no, I understand. Of the news recently. I understand. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's that's what they're basically doing. I, I, I'm of the mind. Some people are of the mind that. Uh, well, there are people who think that something else other than TikTok is next, and people are arguing about what that may be. I think it's encryption. I think they're going to try and ban encryption as soon as they ban TikTok because that the language of the bill expressly, basically, it says that they can ban a technology in the interest of national security. They can ban a platform. They can ban a technology in the interest of national security. And it seems to me that they've been attacking encryption so hard now. But they again, they can't do it. Because what people used to say about the internet, the internet always routes around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that's another uh, um, uh, way I think I, I personally view it. And I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on uh, about like in terms of like social relatability and how people re- interact with each other, specifically on the internet, I think is especially uh, prominent, which is like when people have like these sort of like peer to peer connections mm-hmm. uh, with other people on the internet. And also with the, with, on the concept of the rhizome, the, the rhizome is it, it expands, right. And it has all these like sort of like lines of flight to it. 
um, which allows like different uh, avenues and choices that people can make. And you're not kind of like funneled or bottlenecked into like one way of living your life in some sense, like living your life in some sense or socializing. Right. So like the, the fact that the internet allows so many people uh, so many th- different avenues of choice that they can be like, okay, well, you know, I don't want to be here in this social space anymore. And I can just with like a click of a button or something, go join this social space, something that, you know, has been, com- was completely unprecedented before the invention of the internet. Oh, um, incredibly so. Uh, and, uh, you know, specifically even now with technology, like, as you said, like even like open source projects or something like uh, 3d printing, um, uh, just the, the, the expansion of choice that the internet has given us. I'm, I'm curious about, how you think the how rhizomatic is the internet, um, and what do you see is like? Do you think that a, like the the internet itself as a whole, whole is applicable to like a, a rhizomatic structure? So you know, I think look at the whole internet. I think I think you'd probably see mostly a rhizome rhizomic structures but you know when it comes down to twitter or the platforms you know those are arborescent you know those are those are institutionalized controls those are and so you know i think it's a you know when when looking at i get especially with from from there where it's like what part are we talking about like if we were talking about news for example we would i think that we could say to news today is largely there's a lot of rhizomes on the periphery of right. like, you know, journalists and stuff. And then you still have a lot of the institutionalized um, networks, CNN, Fox mm-hmm. News, except, et cetera. Oh, yes. It's, it, I think the, you know, the question is at any given point is are the rhizomes that are being, and, I, and at least I guess for me, what are the rhizomes doing? Like, are they, uh-huh. are they, are they promoting? Cause you know, this is the truth. And I, and I think this emphasizes there, you know, no good or bad. You can have a rhizome. I would say QAnon probably acts pretty rhizomatically, right? For the most part, I think that right. you know, sir, um, you know, the uh, flat earthers act mm-hmm. rhizomatically in a large right. in a large way. So you know, I think that it is it does foster rhizomes, and then it does you know, arborescence is in there as to you know, at times are the are are the are the arborescent maybe more preferable than a rhizome in that place? I don't know. You know, I think it. I, I think right. it's a matter of what the conditions we're looking at and what we're trying to understand out of the situation. I, yeah. I'm right. What right. Yeah. what you asked Ace made me think of. Um, have you, you guys have all seen you you, you both have seen um, the way that like Spanish moss hangs off of a tree? The kind of yeah. that. Oh, yeah. It makes me think of that, where it's like you have certain portions of the internet that are the Spanish moss. Um, you have certain portions of the internet that are that grow in like these uncontrolled webs, and they're hanging off of this tree that is the internet. Because the backbone of the functionally, as on a hardware level, the backbone of the internet's like three companies. <laughs> like there's there's three yeah, corporations right. yeah, that control right. the whole goddamn thing. And Amazon's one of the biggest. I mean, the, the, the you can't hardly host anything without it being on an Amazon server anymore. So mm-hmm, it's one of those right. things where you can have these sort of uh, uh, this show, alternative internet radio, right? This is this is the rhizomatic structure that hangs off of the tree <laughs> that is the internet because right. it, it makes yeah. me it makes me think in that way. Um, but but to me, I, I I do like the idea though. 
And you, you, you asked this question earlier, Hunter, about what's preferable, the, the, the arborescent or the rhizomatic in certain situations. I like the idea that the internet is growing into this web of self-hosted technologies through things like IPFS uh, and stuff like that, where the, I, I, I mean, to return to an early metaphor, the, it's, it's a kudzu vine that's choking the tree and, and that will choke the tree. And by the time, by, within a certain amount of time, all you have left is the kudzu and it ate the tree yeah. and it's functionally doing the same thing, but the tree's gone. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, like you asked, I don't know if that's preferable, but I really, really like the idea. <laughs> oh, and, and, and fully agree with there. I, I, you know, I think that's interesting too, is I think that when it comes down to the internet, you could probably, we could probably say, at least from reading different things from the 90s, it seems like that was always the perspective of the internet. Like back in the 90s, there was a view of it being, you know, just this very open, very free and liberating space. I think that, you know, even in the early 2000s, I think a lot of people thought that though the tech tech collapse at the time, I think brought in more arborescence just by the nature. And I think that, you know, it, we saw the when the social media platforms came through because they then became these centers and these hosts for so much of the rest of the internet, mm-hmm, right? right. It, it It's as if like, it's you know, the tree it. grew its branches out into some of these other <laughs> rhizomes and then, you know, they became dependent on, or they grew out into some of those other, other arborescence, be it like mm-hmm. the news, news companies who now, you know, they're suffering financially because they, because the whole process, their organs are, you know, now cut by these other arborescents that are kind of sapping away their income slowly but surely. Right. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, I, I I believe that the long term, I think long term, it is very rhizomatic. It's, I think at right. this stage, it's with a lot of things, I think I've become very pragmatic in the sense that I expect more arborescence to occur in the future and more rhizomes. It's just a matter of like, what is going to, for me, I just think, okay, what are, what's the best situation given the circumstances, you know, of here are the arborescence, here's the rhizomatic. Do we want more rhizomes in this direction or, or more, maybe it's like, maybe we're better off if there, if an arborescence into that direction instead, because at least then where it's, you don't have as much chaos from right. that, right? So, well, it's one of those things that, I, I, you know, you do obviously in some situations want a more arborescent structure. There's a, there's a certain point. I mean, just for example, like I, 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 I want to, well, I should say this. I'm, I'm happy that my parents had authority over me. You know what I mean? Because I would have been mm-hmm. a fucking hellion had they not. Um, and, and it, you know, somebody could get hurt. Like it's like, there's a real, there are, there are benefits yeah, huh? to, to huh. strictly hierarchical sort of structures in that way. Um, I think I think the downsides just become more pronounced when you have people uh, doing it wrong. You know what I mean? Like when you have people who are who use oh, yeah. that authority in a in a negative way, or they use that authority irresponsibly. That's when the 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 negative side of a hierarchical structure gets very 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 pronounced. But it, I mean, right. it, to me, oh, it's like 100%. the larger the thing gets, 
the more rhizomatic it probably should be, right? Um, I mean, for example, like, I mean, you mentioned the internet and, and sort of the dream of the internet in the 90s. Um, <clears throat> there were, there was an interesting sort of, the, 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 I just rewatched, um, so forgive me, I just rewatched, uh, uh, hypernormalization. Because it's a great documentary. <laughs> it's really good. It's a documentary oh, about. Uh, yeah, it's a documentary. Oh, you haven't seen it, Hunter? Go ahead. No, I haven't. I'm just looking it up. On, I'm going to look it up now to watch hyper normalization. Hyper normalization. Yes. Yep. Okay. Done. And he has okay. a he has a section in there about the sort of uh, techno, uh, what he calls the techno utopians. Who, exi- who who existed in the '90s and in the early 2000s, and they um, there was a war between them and a group of hackers who saw different things in the internet. That the, the techno utopianists saw very much as we were describing this place of unmitigated freedom, and and that that quote unquote cyberspace was going to be a a place of 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 freedom and happiness and all this other stuff. And this group of hackers saw the greatest threat to human freedom that has ever existed. (laughs) That's so funny. Yeah, and they they ended up having a fucking fight about it. And and some of the hackers actually hacked uh, the FBI and got arrested. Um, But they were trying to prove their point, which is like, this this is going to be worse than you can possibly imagine. Stop celebrating this. Um, but I think, I, I mean, to me, I think in hindsight, at least, it seems fairly obvious that it was both. Um, yes. Yeah, but, yeah, no, 100%. But the, it, to me, it seems like the, the all the bad shit that we have um, is related only to the kind of hierarchical nature. And the rhizomatic stuff, the rhizomatic portions of the internet, the way people interact with it, who, who start their own websites, the, the old forum days, things like that, all of that was sort of the expression of, of, of uh, quote-unquote utopian human freedom that, that people thought it was going to be. It's when, the, it's when power got involved that things kind of went shitty at a certain point. At least that's that. That's oh. kind of my own yeah, well, um, sort of pet theory, anyway. Speaking off then, I think this factors in. I, I, I think this factors in exactly with like the uh, you know the uh, Techopians. Um, the uh, uh, Hunter, are you familiar with like the uh, the cypherpunks in the nineties? The anarchists uh, knows the cypherpunks. Uh, I feel like I've heard of them, but I don't, I'm not too familiar. Okay. They're so cool. They, they A lot of very... anarchist history ends up running into like the the 1930s. <laughs> okay. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, no, the cypherpunks are probably some of my favorite anarchists, uh, just because uh, like they, they very much were like. No, the internet is a place. Uh, they, some of, I mean, they still thought like the internet could be a dangerous place, but they were very much on the hey, the internet is one of the greatest tools of human freedom that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were very much on the, they very much saw the internet as a playground, like an open space to for creation for t- this type of idea of we're going to, you know, revolutionize human freedom. Uh, by in having these sort of like peer to peer experiences with people that cannot be traced by these hierarchical like uh, 
corporations or governments and stuff like that. Uh, very cool. And a lot of them weren't just like, you know, theory uh, nerds. They were also like, no, we're writing code. Uh, we're working on encryption, you know, things like that. So a lot of the like uh, things we see even today, uh, like the, the cypherpunks were very instrumental. in. so it, when we were talking like uh, rhizomatic structures, I always think about like, that's kind of, that's without explicitly acknowledging very much what they see the future of the internet to be, or at least what they wanted the internet to be mm-hmm. uh, at the time. I, I think it's very interesting. And I, um, I did want to jump off actually for a second and talk about like, how would you say the rhizome, uh, like a, a rhizome, if you're looking at this rhizomatically, how would you look at something like culture? And specifically, like culture and subculture, um, and I, maybe this maybe this goes in more to re-territorialization and deterritorialization. But um, um, no, you know, I think so. I think that you know, it's, it seems pretty obvious that I think they would say that you know, culture, you know, when you talk about it, is is generally rhizomatic. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, it's also centering around a parish, around a bishopric, around a capital. Right. You know, there are these bulbs of like activity that are going to become self-referential. They're going to mm-hmm. create these forces, and the spread of that culture is going to is still going to probably proceed rhizomatically as moving outward. But right. um, you know, I think. It, the question I think is, okay, what are the structures that seem to be continually establishing an arborescent model of culture versus what is undermining that? So, you know, when it comes down to uh, like dictionaries, you know, if we're talking about, right. Are, yes, that's a great example. You know, they're, they're, they are an arborescent model. What is at the same time, at the same time, the outside culture, the internet for, you know, uh, 4chan and all the other, you know, yeah, worst places the of the internet and best places yeah. of the internet, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> that's where, you know, the different the language is being changed. Memes are developing new content. Right. So, you know, in terms of culture, it's like a matter of like, okay, well, if I'm going to talk about the culture of LA, I'm going to talk about probably Hollywood. What is the, what is it draw? What's in Hollywood that draws people from out of state to there or and how do the people around hollywood relate their sel- themselves and their you know culture there at the same time it's like you go to a different neighborhood well in la it's funny you actually will have like ukrainian neighborhoods you have you have uh-huh. persian neighborhoods and yeah. so you know some of them there's a certain a lot of them may have a certain arborescence because they came for a very specific re- reason and they wanted to be around each other. So there you right. see different arborescent there, but hey, but you know, then maybe there's the there's the uh been at ten o'clock EDM stage that all the kids from the neighborhoods around go to that no one knows about. Uh-huh. And then that's like the rhizome. That's where there's that right. generation of new culture and extension of that culture. The internet too would be playing into that because, okay, you're raised in a more conservative local town, but the right, but by hooking your phone up to Twitter, be it like a queer space on Twitter or just mm-hmm. on the Reddit, you're starting, the, you're starting up this new engine that, a bunch of new cultural things will come your way, which will change your cult 
internally and then it's you're producing a new you know culture right. in your interactions and stuff so you know it depends i think on like what frame we're looking at yeah but in general i think it's it's rhizomatic you know because it's it's not right. just the language it's not just a culture it's the religions it's the ethnicity yeah. it's all the stuff that's getting jumbled up together and re-territorialization and deterritorialization i should think are great to then think about how how different things are impact those individual sets and series of people and groups mm-hmm. and how making them either closer to each other or farther from each other to illustrate used about the dictionary Go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry. I just want to say to illustrate that point you just made, there's something that I've been looking at. The, the linguists are interested in. Um, there is a, a currently a, a death that's occurring of the regional dialect in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 the younger generations do not have the pronounced regional dialect of, of their parents or grandparents. And one of the theories about why that is, is that there is so much content on the internet where there are too many, people are either being exposed to too many regional dialects or they are being exposed to people who speak um, in sort of a Midwestern non-accent that um yeah that that kind of it, it, it it's it's killing the the regional dialect the, this this uh, not and I'm not saying necessarily that's a good or bad thing it's just this regional dialect this idea of the regional accent in the United States is kind of falling apart because people mm-hmm. are connected to the internet and being exposed to so much more that there's more of a standard English being spoken now in the U.S. at least than there ever mm-hmm. was in the past. And and it's well, and it's and you know something that's sort of infectious in that way. I'm yeah, sorry. well, and, and I I that's like oh no I'm I'm sorry to uh, prematurely, but I feel like in some ways I I I see that that that's my experience in a lot of ways because my family was from Ohio. I lived in North Carolina my whole life, but I always lived on or within like 50 miles of a military base. And that military base is where you're going to have where you know, oh, when, yeah. when I was living on the military base. I uh, I don't remember hearing the southern accent until I had moved off the military base. There is one kid on the Ford um, that he was this he was this really pale, you know, stupid blonde hair kid from Tennessee, and the way he talked. And I remember hearing him once in like second third grade, and I was like. Why are you talking like that? <laughs> you know, like I've got, I've had, I would have a, my buddy was Samoan next to me. The other guy next to me was from Santa, Sacramento or something. You know, they're from everywhere. And so the, the Southern accent was just not heard, a, heard regularly mm-hmm. on that base because if they were from the South, maybe they're like Louisiana. That doesn't sound like, you know, what's ne- the rest of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So I, I, the internet in a sense, I guess would almost be doing the same thing because you now have, you know, everyone's within, Within a fifty miles, you know, of a base, in a sense, of a bunch of right. culture that's just pouring into their homes, that is undifferentiated unless you're like one and watch CMT, you know. Exactly, it's a it's an interesting sort of. It just made me think of that. That like, I've seen several linguists who said that like the regional the regional dialect, the regional accent is going away. <laughs> um, oh. It's a trend well, that they have noticed. We have so much migration here. Yeah, when we have so much internal immigration here, that I that doesn't surprise me. 
with the internet and all the internal immigration that happens in this country right. now, I'm I'm less surprised by that. Yeah. Um, Hunter, going back to a thing you said about the dictionary specifically, uh, and how like a dictionary is like arborescent because it's like tracing, right? You're in, mm-hmm. going back to the, uh, the analogy of like tracing versus mapping. Uh, um, it, it seems like, you know, if, in terms of the dictionary, uh, as you said, you know, it's just tracing, it's, it's, uh, referencing, you know, what has been, um, and, and kind of like codifying that into like an authoritative, like, uh, you know, a book of this is what this means. Uh, and then slang, right. Which is innovative yeah. and new, uh, and, and, uh, slang being, you know, inducted into the dictionary, uh, always comes after the slang itself necessarily. Right. So mm-hmm. you have this, you know, the mapping in some sense always precedes the tracing in, in, in this way, at least. Yeah. Uh, where, yeah, where you know you're you're creating these new pathways uh, linguistically for these new like uh, this new set of meaning, and then the dictionary has to catch up, right? It, um, and, and with culture, right? There's always like you, know, you have this arborescent side, and then this rhizomatic side, and they're always in contest with each other. So when a new culture is created, that is something that is argued like very rhizomatic when people create this like subculture, this underground culture or something like that. Uh, but then eventually it almost uh, territorializes itself in some way and becomes an arborescent structure. Yeah. And then you almost like uh, pay homage to it over time, which is very much against the creation of it in the first place. And there's a sense. great example uh, which of is that. Interesting. I'm not saying it's bad, but it's yeah. Yeah, there's a great example of that in the Occupy movement. If you remember the, the 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 early days of the Occupy movement, it was very unorganized. It was it was very much like a mm-hmm. they had their own kind of thing going on. Now it's a uh, Occupy is an organization with lawyers. Like there's a like there's a <laughs> there's a there, I I I remember I was listening to the radio and somebody made reference to lawyers for occupy and i'm i'm sitting here thinking wait wait a fuck what this is a this is a corporation David now is rolling his grave yeah exactly <laughs> David is rolling in his grave right now <laughs> right yeah Oh, it's like it's like you have two sides. You have the David Grabers where he was like, uh-huh. hey, let's 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 shut this place down. And then you got the George Soros who's like, oh, I see you have closed the place down. I have lawyers to make sure that keeps happening. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's the it's yeah. It blew my yeah. mind when I first heard that for lawyers for Occupy. And I was like, oh, fucking what? Okay. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like the BLM, right? Like it's exactly say, like BLM. a lot of like the original. Yeah. A lot of a lot of that social movements, I think, in general, they start. You know, there's there they 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 arise rhizomatically out of like an obvious issue, and then you know they start they for, start to for, arborescence gets inserted in there, usually for you know practicality. I think, but it's also going back to that um, I mentioned in the talk, uh, the microfascism. There's always present these underlying possibilities in microfascism. I think that you know, for for Deleuze and Guattari, they're referencing like the Maoist groups and the Leninist groups. But I think that you can say that too about certain left wing groups now, where it's they have that where you know they start our start out rhizomatically because of an obvious need, and then there's the, there's these processes of of um, crystallization 
of the more mm-hmm. fascistic, you know, hard lines, you know, maintaining party line. We got to say, you know, we can't say that, you know, we can't pick what we choose, pick and choose what battles we fight, etc. But yeah, no, no, I think that's what that it was. Means, a- yeah. It's very much you bring up BLM is perfect because that's one of those things that did start. That was such a grassroots thing. And then um, Mm -hmm. you start hearing about how uh, some people on the board at BLM took off with all the money. And it's like, wait, they why they have a board Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> why did they right. have a, why is why, there, why is there a board why is it a 501c3 why is it even a corporation it doesn't make any sense <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah 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 it, it, so it, it, I, I fear that a lot of the time i fear that with some of the communities that i'm in i i fear that in the 3d printed gun community i fear that in the anarchist community i i i see Seeing what happens to uh, countercultural movements when, uh, yeah. as we're talking about arborescence, creeps in, it never, ever, ever seems to go well. Yeah, well, you know, the thing is, I think it, it, the question I think sometimes is also there. There are trade offs, right? So, if I was going to throw one kind of a, a little example, you know, you could look at the hippie and the yuppie movement of the nineteen sixties, mm-hmm. and and the argument it would you could probably. That I think some people would say is that, like, after successes, they realized that they could not, that they did not have enough of the population to really wage what would have been you know, a, a, a defeat for the youth. So, what ends up being the two choice? What is the choice? Well, you end up have some that become war, like, bat, like, that follow a line of flight of just an extreme hippie culture, in which I think that you could say is easily corralled and then taken advantage of by like types like Marilyn um charles manson or you have the one where um i'm blanking on the guy that was big one in the yuppies they turn to capitalism yeah um they they end up moving corporate because the reality is that time you realize we're going to pursue some of our at least social goals, our social goals, maybe we can end up, you know, doing this through capitalism. That's how you get, I mean, that's that was always the argument that what's his face from Whole Foods would say why he started Whole Foods, oh, right. so he could pursue his hippie, his hippie in- intentions. So, you know, I think that, you know, there's always those, those, the, I think the question that befalls a lot of movements is, when circumstances change, you know, when you have Nixon in office as compared to LBJ, there, you know, if people want to want to pursue certain ends over others, it ends up being a requirement. You know, you have to choose. You have to make these choices, though, at the same time, you can perpetuate rhizomes on those structures, too. So, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think that would be the mentality that, that a lot of the tech stuff was kind of on the underside of the hippie stuff. Even if you're looking at like like Steve Jobs, it was kind of perpetuated. And I think that's where you then end up some of the, like the, there's a great essay called The Californian, Californian Ideology. And it kind of tracks this kind of movement of individualism from the hippie movements and the yuppies into then what is the computer age into the early 1990s internet. mm yeah, okay. I, I, I can see how that work, would work out. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who the guy is because his name is really famous, but I'm so bad at remembering uh, the famous people of the oh, 60s. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. while, you, while you try and remember that... Maybe I, I never read you. 
it makes me think uh, too about the. Um, it's it's also mentioned tertiarily in in uh, in uh, hypernormalization that idea that as the as the '60s started to die out, you had sort of an abandonment of the ideology by some of the people who were at the forefront of it. Hypernormalization um, references, in particular, like uh, musical artists and stuff in New York who were kind of Ooh. at the at the front of that and then as the 70s started to creep in it was just like eh never mind it's not working fuck it <laughs> like, like they just kind of gave up yeah um but, yeah i would say that i would say that it's because they they were confronted with certain things that they that were hard to deal with because like that's when nixon ends up taking right. on bringing the drug war specifically to go after right. the hip specifically to go after the black power movement which we have record of multiple people in Nixon's administration saying, yeah, yeah that's why we did it. We, we, we need yeah. to get into the Black Panthers meetings. We need to get into these meetings. This is a great way to do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, there, there was, that, there was that too, leading right? up to it was COINTELPRO. There's, there's all that shit that, that was designed to um, re-territorialize those movements. I'm yep. sorry, I interrupted Ace. Yeah. I know I'm, really I'm coming in through you guys on a little bit no, of a delay, fine. I can tell. So it's, I'm interrupting people, I'm sorry. No, you're fine, you're fine. Uh, I, I was just going to say, it, it's interesting too what you said, because it's like, um, while, you know, these marginalized groups are always, you know, mapping out new territory in some sense, uh, it is still very dangerous on the margins, right? There's a, there is a good reason people do, like, a, sort of, like, incorporate, right, into, like, uh, uh, this, like, arborescent structures, because uh, the margins are very dangerous, like, uh, so, yeah, that completely makes sense to me. Yeah. Would you guys, I don't know if you guys want to take, want to keep going and I'm happy to keep going. I do have those couple paragraphs about territorial, deterritorialization, oh, yeah, deterritorialization, if you, if you want me to do that. Uh, that would be absolutely, great because yeah. I, I would love to talk about that a little bit, especially as it relates to, well, various things, but yeah, go ahead. Awesome. Okay. So <clears throat> I'll try and hit re-territorialization a bit, though I'll be using less quotes this time. The thing with re-territorialization and deterritorialization is I think it's best to start off with geography, like you're looking down at a map. Let's think about the maps that pollsters will make with election year. Think of a state where you've got everything broken into red and blue counties, but also different gradients of blue and red for different margins and thresholds of Republican and Democratic support. And then think of how over time those lines, those boundaries are becoming darker or lighter. If the lines between the red and blue become intensely red and blue, then we'd say it is highly ter territorialized or re-territorialized. In this paradigm, we're looking at it. If the boundaries all start to become lighter and the lines between the chunks of blue and red become harder to determine, then we would say it's becoming highly deterritorialized. What we're looking at is the rigidity of the lines at play. A great presenter on Deleuze, Manuel Landa, used the example of Lebanon before and after the Civil War. So before the Civil War in Lebanon, the situation was a little deterritorialized in one way, in which the multitude of various religious communities were a bit more receptive to each other, though a little less if you were cozy with the French. On the other hand, it was highly territorialized in the sense that you had major cities and clear infrastructure. 
However, after the Civil War, things are the opposite. The individual religious communities have become a lot more closed off to one another, and secularism was less present. At the same time, the cities and country were more deterritorialized because the bombings and the fallout from the Civil War that had turned buildings to rubble and laid ruin to a lot of the infrastructure. The point is that these two processes are constantly at work, and it's very, very rarely a question of, is this or that thing going to be deterritorializing or re-territorializing? But rather, at what level are we seeing this occur? In what individuals, groups, and social forms is it affecting in such a way? Now, you guys, um, now you guys have mentioned how this might you're thinking about how maybe this would work in the culture war. Mm-hmm. Well, I would think a good place to look at would be gay marriage in the Supreme Court case. Ober- Oberfell Ober- Ober- and Hodges. When- oh, yeah. Yeah. Obergefell. <laughs> yeah. It is, it is not um, easy and it's harder to spell on a test. I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, because I, I wanted to put I wanted to put an R at the end after the GE. No, no, yeah, I that hundred percent. Yeah, it's That's really, like, really hard. <laughs> but when the Supreme Court made their decision, I think you could probably say it was deterritorializing to the gay marriage movement because the push for that had brought together a lot of, at times, different groups from your white gay, your white collar collared gay men to trans women and pretty much everyone that identified as queer now that the goal had been achieved there was a le- there was less to keep that coalition as rigid as it was mm-hmm. at the same time while on the right you certainly had some conservatives that were like okay fine let's just move move on already you also had some that took that as reason to double down i.e matt walsh and so in the area, right? And so in that area, the worst person on the internet. Truly, truly. So, so like in that area, you see a sharpening of lines in the GOP. You know, you could probably argue it's been that part of the GOP and the conservative movement that keeps the party platform what it is today, and that it's only you know they only regard marriage as one woman and one man as valid. And so that was my little intro into deterritorialization, reterritorialization. Yeah, I I found yeah. So I think when Dean and I were talking about this uh, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about this specifically in terms of like the culture war and like how uh, reterritorialization works. And it's I, I find it interesting how sometimes uh, I, I'm interested in hear your opinion, Hunter, on if it's applicable to this in, in this discussion in any way about how certain certain culture war groups or culture warriors will select certain issues and decide not to touch other issues until the time arises. And sometimes they flip a little bit on like which issues to like, uh, you know, um, uh, bring out is really like the, the hot topic of the time um, and kind of like how that moves and flows. Um, like, like over time. I, I, I mean, I guess, you know, we get the marriage example too, because that's that's like that. It, for a while, that wasn't a highly debated topic. Mm. That you know, there were a few years where I, I think I feel like most people just, were just like, uh, okay, yeah, let's just move on. And now it's come back, uh, yeah, full force. Uh, yeah. It seems. Well, you know, I, I I was reading something real quick. I, I was actually reading something by David French, a tweet of his. <laughs> um, and, and there was something that and they were talking about, like the drag shows, right? Mm-hmm. And someone had mentioned, you know, if you look back, I think it was 2019, 2020, there was an essay by, um, 
by by a conservative. I, I forget his name. Um, I think it's Arab's So Rab Amari, and he had been he had written an essay called "Against David Frenchism," and because his main point was that you know this the slow conservative push against um, this slow conservative loss in the culture war. He So Rab had mentioned. Uh, the drag shows had mentioned the drag story hour and the irony is of how like that you know a lot of people even in the national review were like so rab's a little off on this one this isn't a big deal and yet it's been redeployed i mean you know about i guess almost a year exactly i guess is when this all came back in the news so i think that you know this is something that different groups are actively thinking about because they know that if they bring it up well first of all they there's a certain calculus right Your, their hope is that the trans community the drag community will become more hardened and mm-hmm. they're hoping that the you know outrage or the or the the effects of that hardening will then pull more people in the middle over toward their side that's like for example right. i think you guys remember the um white lives matter thing yep mm-hmm. you yes. remember when that came out and i would say that was done in a very specific manner because the fact, you know, the Nazis knew that if they put that up, they expected you have an already very paranoid left of variety of people right. who were going to come down hard. They were going to re-territorialize very hard on that. And the goal was by doing that, then you slow, you decentralize some of the outskirts some of the white people on the outskirts of that side. And the hope is that you're pulling, you are re- there at the same time re-territorializing their own side of you know of the far right right. kind of for you know in the sense that that people's response to the come down on 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 white lives matter people coming down really hard on it would 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 have the appearance and it did successfully have the appearance of oh this is just hatred for white people like they like they legitimately do not believe that your life matters as a white person and for some of them that's probably true but but the the general (laughs) cultural come down from the from the black lives matter side it it was very effective in in making um the 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 sort of blm movement broadly appear anti-white which was the goal yes no it was very effective and here's the thing is that it's not even just individual groups because there is an even better example of how this is done, but by a freaking news agency, which pissed me off the most. But you saw the whole digital blackface, right? Oh, oh my God. Yes. And, and the whole thing, and, and I think I was watching Vosh who mentioned, he was like, this was out five years ago. This was a th- something that had been thrown out like five years ago, arguably when this was yeah. stuff like people maybe believed in this kind of stuff more, but it was thrown uh-huh. out five years ago and very few people received it. And it was thrown out again. And it's like, okay, that's the point is to re-territorialize these lines for right. to make them more right. to make them more rigid to make them more defined even though i mean you know there you would be hard pressed to find a lot of black people that even believe that yeah, they, nobody gives right. the, the only people who give a shit about that and talk about it are grifting they're actively grifting yeah Exactly. Like yeah. there's there's nobody who no no real human being actually gives a fuck. <laughs> yeah, there's, no. a, there's a locked account on Twitter, and I won't uh, out their name, but I, I do want to give them credit because that's where I heard it from. But they always say it's bad on purpose to make you click, and it's it, it, yep, the, the yep, point yep. is to make you mad. Mm-hmm. That is why this is here. That it's is exactly like, right. Like this is not some like you know thing that most people believe. It's intentionally bad to make you hate some some group or something. Yeah. And, and, and it's, and 
I think it's important to recognize that, you know, at the end of the day, it's like there are a number of actors that I think when we look at, you know, left, right, the different sides, mm-hmm. even parties or stuff, it's to forget that, like, there are other entities that have very vested interests in these in these lines being, you know, rigidified. They're becoming yes. harder and more and more toxic. Well, honestly. it justifies their own existence, right? Yeah. It's like, if, if, how can you be, you know type of be some type of you know great hero or cultural warrior on your side if you don't have an enemy mm-hmm. and if your enemy isn't realistic to like your side then people are just gonna like see is like a joke right you're 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 chasing dragons or chasing ghosts or whatever you know what i mean so they rely on that outrage that you know that response uh mm-hmm. from the other side in order to like justify their own existence and it and it feeds it feeds the whole machine too because you have this the people engage when they're pissed so there's a vested interest in in making sure that people see stuff that makes them mad because that's when they do just like it's bad on purpose to make you click it it, it, they people willing and and that gives you what ad revenue it's it, it's very very good for people when people are pissed. Yep. It's really no. good for the moneyed interests. Oh, and Twitter's. I think uh, Elon's. I feel like been pushing hardcore <laughs> into that because I mean, I, when I do look at my for you, P- oh my god, I'm like okay, this is this is yeah. this is in- this is for my rage. Yes, right. it's not it, for it, me. It is for my rage. I've seen it so feeds me stuff I yeah. hate. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And Thanks, like, Elon. I hate it. <laughs> God, <laughs> no, it's like it, it's it's interesting, and I think just I guess when when thinking about this, I, I really appreciate this kind of model of you know the territorialization, deterritorialization, in in large because it does help us, I think, jump across these different segments of groups. You know, when it ta- mm-hmm. you know say like you know. Uh, even when we're talking about the the right wing, we're talking about Trump. Well, we would say that Trump has been incredibly powerful in just kind of deterritorializing a bunch and then causing systemic reterritorializations oh, yes. in all different directions. You know, part of his oh, yeah. part of his ability is he's able to, you know, do things that. He knows will harden the left and then maybe make some of the left go a little crazy, but also like harden the right. And to be honest, that DA in New York, I would say, has done more to help Trump's campaign, election, re-election <laughs> campaign yeah. than anything that could have been done. And then yeah. I think all right. the all the contestants for the election on that side are now really mad that of all the all the different court cases that could have been brought first, this was the one. Right. right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you have an entire subsection of people who think that uh, this guy I really like is a martyr and they're going mm-hmm. after him, it turns out going after him uh, is only going to embolden them in their mm-hmm. beliefs. Especially uh, yeah. when you do it on yeah. on something that is frankly, I mean, look, it, it's it's weak. The case is weak. There's there, there's a there are, there are so many problems with it. It's not like it's not like he killed a guy and they're taking him in for murder mm-hmm. right this is a this is a very soft case and so you don't have the kind of hardline sort of support that you might get from even people who are like centrist people in the middle who would say well yeah but he killed a guy you know what i mean like, like i don't like him he mm-hmm. killed a guy you, you don't get that here 
when the story first came out yeah. and I heard, I found out it was about the Stormy Daniels thing. I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> We're going back to, yeah. going back to this well for real. It was, it was, it, it's, well, I mean, it's and it, and it, wild miscalculation. I'm sorry. Continue. <laughs> Well, no, I mean, because I think you could say it again. I think that, you know, that from what I've heard, it sounds like the DA had, you know, New York, Manhattan is very territorialized in opposition to Trump. There is, you know, his, you know, the, this would, in some ways, this may help him in his next election, depending on how long he's able to push this, this sham trial forward, just because, you know, the, the, the geography of that city is so one-sided in that. Oh, and his you know, jury pool is going to be one-sided. I mean, he's... Uh, the, oh, yeah, that's uh, a to Staten Island, I think. Oh, are they really? I, I think they're going to try. Because they, because they know that there's no, ch- there's no chance that he's going to do That's well the only way they could... Pool. That's the only way they could get a good jury. Staten Island. Yeah. That's the only way we they could get a good jury is like, if they tried to move, yeah. to move it to... Move it either out of the city or, yeah, Staten Island. Mm. I think within like a day or maybe a couple hours of the indictment, Trump was selling T-shirts on his website of mm-hmm. a fake mugshot, which did not. We never got an actual mugshot. Yeah, they didn't he take one. A fake mugshot in like plastered plastered on a T-shirt, yeah. and it's just it's just like yeah, he's going to milk this for all that he can, and, and it's, it, <laughs> it'll work. Like I, you know, yeah. I'm not gonna lie. I I am I am less worried now that Ron DeSantis will actually be a, will actually uh-huh. have a shot because at this point yeah. <laughs> this consolidates so much of that of of the GOP for him that right. you know I know Nikki Haley Pence and DeSantis are looking like what really couldn't it have been Georgia first couldn't Georgia have done this first <laughs> right yeah and then and then well and then also DeSantis now is has woken the great angry god of Bob Iger so oh, yeah. he's got a lot of problems on his plate that right. meant, Bob Iger was so happy for for the next decade to be on his yacht doing not doing anything and then between his bad replacement and Ron DeSantis he had to come back and he's about to make it everyone's problem Mickey Mouse is about to pay Ron DeSantis a visit at 12 a.m. just like in a dark alley I don't know why it's, I mean, to your point, actually, and, and this actually kind of connects to the, the topic at large, but like, why would you, as Ron DeSantis, go to war with ABC? Like, well, that, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's just it made the- sense when it was Chappic. It made sense when you had like, when you had like an overly easily angered CEO that shouldn't have been CEO, but now, but now he's brought back. The guy that, you know, this is who Steve Jobs took over the company with the last, you know, yeah. a decade and a half ago. Like, this it, is, it's, it's, the guy's got more money than Ron DeSantis even runs, I think. Yeah. The idea, too, that, that uh, this kind of. I'm wondering, too, we were talking about how Trump kind of was able to, was very effective at, at deterritorialization and reterritorialization. Is that. I mean, I think it's, I think it is, I will say this, and, and some people will not appreciate it, but I think it's true. Trump was fully aware of the support that he got from, uh, like real ass neo-Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. he was very aware of that and he, he, mm-hmm. he did not want to, I don't, I don't think that Trump is himself a neo-Nazi. I think that's insane, but he certainly had no. their support. And he, and, and he knew this and he, he liked that he had that particular coalition 
And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if there's kind of an interesting argument to be had about retoritarialization with regard to uh, hardline right wingers, uh, I mean, far right wingers, into sort of the fold of the general GOP. I mean, there were people like um, uh, uh, Nick Fuentes, for example, didn't mean shit before Trump. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if that's a if that is itself a form of reterritorialization, where you take these people who have been really on the outs forever. Uh, you know, so long as you're not David Duke, you you really haven't had any connections or power politically, and the, and they kind of come back into the fold, as it were. Um, and on the, on the yeah, left, similarly with hardline hard. commies. I mean, for being honest, yeah. Well, well, apparently so is the Libertarian Party at this time. But well, <laughs> yeah. I digress. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I digress. That's correct. Um, but no. <laughs> um, I, you know, I think what I would say is this: is I think that what Trump was really good at doing, and what he really really good was he deterritorialized a lot of the the population that the establishment GOP had more or less kind of mitigated you could say they inherited this from like William F Buckley who I think was mm-hmm. you know probably the brain child the GOP of you know the 80s on was the brainchild of William F Buckley in a lot of ways and I think that Trump deterritorialized it the, the group and by doing so he also it also went it struck lines into you know the blue dog democrat areas into different groups of people who be it like they were union maybe they were maybe they were you know ohio michigan etc maybe they have like really off you know views about race but they had always voted democrat because they were union members that's what the union members mm-hmm. do and i think that he was really good at being able to deterritorialize the belief that a that the parties were working for anyone for, for those groups of people anyways. And then by opening by that deterritorialization, you get these people on the outskirts who had, you know, been kept at bay, you know, they're like, sorry, you say the quiet part out loud. We're not letting you in. We're not letting you in. Now those people were like, okay, there's, there's chaos. You know, when things are more deterritorialized, they're, you know, more, you can move around them more freely. And I think that, you know, you have a particular group of people who have always thought that, you know, chaos is a ladder. And now they've been able to insert themselves into actual, you know, arborescent institutions. I think that like, you know, mm-hmm. there are different states. I mean, you look at the state, uh, Texas GOP's platform. It's it, it is very hard right, you know, and it's very and it's articulated by people that, you know, maybe you could say that some of those beliefs were more general 20 years ago. They're not the, the beliefs of most of even conservatives that are younger today. No. They're the beliefs of like a fringe group that has been able to through its through mm-hmm. its access to the media, through its access to social to the um the online presence is able to way more, you know, push their voices and make them sound louder than they may actually be. And then, you know, in order to run again for election, you have to re-territorialize it. You have to really pull them all together. And I think that's, I, it, I don't know if it's a winning strategy for them. It hasn't won for the last two elections. We'll see what happens in the next couple of years. But it's, I, it's also interesting to me, like, uh, Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I was go have at it. <laughs> I, I was just going to say it's interesting to me that also speaking about like how 
how like, on the culture war side, like how these groups, it's, it's always based upon the reaction, right? They're always trying to get the reaction. And it's very interesting to me how um, there's the symbiotic relationship with like the media and the people who claim to hate the media, right? Because the people yeah. who claim to hate the media have to have the media attention almost to stir their own message, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very interesting, right? Like, like tr- the re- there's a very good case to make that Trump won the election because of the media, right? Yeah, um, yeah. The mainstream. I'm not even talking about like his own Twitter. I'm talking about like the mainstream media. What would be considered mainstream media? He was the uh, only story it, for five very- years. I mean, that's the yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, that's why I was dying during like the day of the of this of his arraignment. I'm just <laughs> dying because every news site it's five <laughs> to ten different yeah. stories about him, and I'm like, okay, it's not like this is a murder murder trial, right? Like this isn't right. a murder <laughs> trial. We're not talking about a very deep case here. This one that like. Okay, right. but like every media site was following his his the following yeah. the cars out of the airports to the courthouse, back from back to the hotel to the yeah. airport, and it's like they acted like it was OJ on the on the freeway, you know, yeah. like that's yeah. that's how they acted. It and it's just like okay, you guys make this. You say you don't want to give do coverage but you're just filming every single thing and writing about where i'm like yeah. i i knew that he i knew he had an arraignment i knew that a week before because you guys have been talking about it for the last <laughs> month every other day there's a yep. new article about what could the charges be and it's <laughs> like you guys are doing this i don't yeah. know why you cut even my npr i you know i cut out a nice chunk of my lunch to listen to npr during the middle of the day because you know what i like madeline brand she's a wonderful <laughs> host here in santa monica but of course of course that hour was cut and I'm just looking, <laughs> we're watching. We're walk, watching the caravan leave the airport. Now. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, we're gonna there bring in a, our talk, our host to talk about how significant is American history. I don't yeah. care. There was a tracker from his flight leaving his home oh. uh, to New York. There was a. They were tracking where his plane was. <laughs> like he's fucking Santa on Christmas. Who needs QAnon if you've got that? If you got the media, <laughs> right. you know. Right. Yes. <sighs> it's such an interesting it, it's it's an interesting sort of uh it, it's an interesting illustration of that kind of social contagion, of the kind of power that that has. Because you can they don't want mm-hmm. it, it's almost like it's a car crash that they can't from their perspective, right? It's a car crash that they can't look away from. They can't stop staring at the guy. And they know, they know that what they're doing is bad, right? But they cannot stop. They can't help themselves. And it causes, it causes this weird wave of, it's, it's the only way I can describe it is contagion. Where the more you talk about it, the, the, the harder that name gets stuck oh. in the public's head, the more power you give it, Right? It's 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 a strange it's 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 an odd thing about people. Um, I think Cody I don't Wilson, know. the inventor, yeah, Cody Wilson, the inventor of the the first like three D printed gun, the Liberator. Um, he talked about this explicitly, where he was talking about like how 
um, what he was doing in order to like spread like 3D printed gun knowledge uh, was the media itself because he uh, you have all these media um, conglomerates talking about like how dangerous these you know ghost guns are and how awful they are but he knew specifically that if he presented the if he presented almost himself as somewhat dangerous or shady uh, he would did get more coverage and then therefore you know these media conglomerates wouldn't in fact. He, he was using them in some sense to spread the message of 3D printed guns to a wider audience. But it, even though the media themselves were like, oh, we we want to, you know, uh, this is a very dangerous thing. We want to restrict this knowledge as much as mm-hmm. possible. Now let's do a 60 minute figment on this man. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. I, I remember that. I remember that. I actually yeah. need to read his, I need to re- read his manifesto because yeah. dude's obviously like, he is what he is. But like, I, mm-hmm. I, I remember seeing a talk by him that seemed interesting. So I, I I'm curious to read him. He's you a know, fascinating funny character. That it kind of reminds me of Animal Spirits. Oh yeah, no, for for sure. But it reminds me of Animal Spirits, and I and this is like tangential, but it almost it, what you're talking about to me is like an adjacent or parallel example would be like, uh, gee, the the crypto market, the bottom fell out of that. Oh wait! All oh, all the stocks are trading lower for some of these tech companies. Oh, all these tech companies starting to lay off employees, huh? You know, huh? Maybe, maybe. Do you think maybe a bank that's entirely invested in the tech sector may go down in a couple <laughs> months? Do you think? You know, the Fed's lowering rates, which will make you know it, that's going to be hard if you're invested in more right. questionable industries. Do you think maybe a, a, oh, a, a bank might go down? A lot of people, uh, this pandemic just started. A lot of people are buying toilet paper right now. Oh, man. Right, <laughs> right. And it's, then someone uh, goes out and buys toilet paper. Not if you're... It's, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry. I have a fucking mute button. I don't know why I didn't hit it. Thank you. Uh, not if you're Jim Cramer. If you're Jim Cramer, it's, it can only go up from here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? I, well, yeah. There, there's something to that, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you got zero today. Then you know any uh, uh, pan fine on the on on the floor tomorrow will be an up. <laughs> God. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> I know when um, when when Ace and I first talked about the the the, the conceptually the the. The idea of reterritorialization with regard to the the sort of rhizomatic structure of social groups. I remember we were talking about it uh with regard to in particular things like BLM and um and uh and Occupy, Occupy and stuff like that. And I'm wondering if if there's a way and this is just kind of a, a sort of wankery thought and if it's stupid let me know. I wonder I'm wondering if there's a way that you can see it coming. Because it's one of those things that if there it, are lawyers coming to buy. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's if you probably see a lawyer, the, the arbor arrested is imminent. That's probably the answer, yeah. <laughs> it was it was because I, I saw it too. I, I, th- I think you're probably right. <laughs> I think you're probably correct. As soon as lawyers get involved. 
Well, no, you know, I, I would say this. I think that whenever you, I, I think the question of, of the arborescence is usually whenever, you know, let me put it this way. Social formations, large scale groups, you face collective actor problems, right? You have right. this issue that yeah. large scale coordination is very hard to do, especially, you know, we have states and states, I would say most people tacitly agree with how states that state that states should exist because we are aware, at least intuitively, that collective action problems are present and they're very hard to deal with when you can't force certain when you, when you have to go through complete consent every time through every threshold of building up an organization. Right. I think that, you know, we could say whenever a form of organization, it's hierarchy that's used tacitly becomes ossified or becomes calcified to such an extent that it is just given that the, that hierarchy will solve the problems of the group. That's probably like the initial sign. At the same time, you know, that's why you have all the anarchists that have their affinity groups, because it's a small group of people. It can it's you know, you guys are working together, but there's no need for that higher structure. And then, mm -hmm. you know, in history, we see that this has always been kind of an issue that, you know, pirate ships, for example, figured out at least an easy, a semi decent protocol of having, you know, a captain that wasn't in charge of the money, but would lead them in battle. Battle, and then you had the quartermaster who would who was you know generally elected by the rest of the crew and who also elected the captain so there are different ways that you deal with these i think that most of these when it comes down to social movements the fact is is that there's no way for it to remain after a certain time without an arborescent model and there's no way for it to i think do reach certain degrees of action that it may want without relying on our arborescent models Unless right. it finds other rhizomes that it can connect up with yes. that are specified yes. towards those kind of action. The problem is just that like, that's a big, tall order for a bunch of people that are already, you know, kind of decentralized and doing their own thing. Right. This actually brings, uh, brings it back to um, what we talked about in the previous episode with the nomadic war machine. Um which is kind of like, you know, this uh, uh, de constantly deterritorialized uh, group of people who don't stay in one place too long in, in some sense, right? Uh, so it, it really seems like the only way to, in some sense, to avoid this is to always constantly be moving and to never kind of settle. And, you know, there's good, good things and bad things about that, obviously. You mm -hmm. know, there's always trade-offs. Uh, but it seems like, you know, any type of group or big, like, social group like tends toward like arborescence, right? As you said before, unless those people are always almost constantly on the move, adopting new identities in some sense uh, for themselves over time, because it seems like, you know, you, you always have on, on the fringe, you have these, this, like this new mapping, this new uh, deterritorialization. And then over once that deterritorialization exists, then it seems like it, 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 it the forces that be kind of like want to recapture it in some sense and institutionalize mm -hmm. it a hundred percent yeah and i and i i don't know if there is an yeah no i don't know if there's any any kind of easy way to resolve that right. problem you know yeah, I, right. technology is i think probably one way that you can try that we can try you know i think that you know, when it comes down to different aspects that you want to take over from the state, there are certain things that you could theoretically do. Are we at the level of which, you know, that can be done, that we could rhizomatically coordinate everyone towards individual gun makers mm -hmm. and people that want to, you know, disrupt? That seems like a 
tall order at this stage. We don't know what technology is going to, what direction technology is going to go in the future, right? You know, and so I think the real question is, you know, maybe, and I like this one from uh, Will Gillis. I think was pretty clear about this. When it comes down to activism, I think a lot of people, one of the issues of activism today is that people take their activist group as their social identity and their oh, social yes. group. Yeah. Yes. And the problem with that is that you are immediately territorializing that institution. Yes. And when that becomes, you, that's, that's going to kill a lot of its potential because it shouldn't just be that, you know, the, the war machine and part of it, it's like other parts can be thrown in and, and you know, parts and it keeps going as a war machine. Whereas, right. you know, it becomes an, a social club of like that I've seen happen in different so you know socialist groups or right. activist groups in the past. You know that eventually it's just a closed social group that goes to you know a protest every once a month or something like that, and then they're just hanging out at a bar doing, and that's all they're doing. And you know that's fine. It's I, I think that when we look mm-hmm. at like long term strategies, I think that's why planning. I think that's why there should be planning of like we should estimate that at times we'll be we'll have to involve ourselves with the R. And when things when things appear to become too calcified, we need to then be like, what are the rhizomes at hand? How do we jumpstart this up again? And it may be a new direction, but at least it is a progress. It's still going to be progress right. at the end of the day. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a very good point about like, you know, uh, making your social activism your, your identity. Because as you said, yeah, you, once once that happens, you're just captured sort of mm. at that point. Uh, uh, in almost a self-perpetuating cycle, it seems, uh, oh, yeah. where it's just like you just become that one thing. And then, uh, yeah, I find that with a lot of like, you know, big movements. And, and certainly, you know, I've uh, I've been critical of like the Libertarian Party for a long time, specifically just to bring in like my own anecdote. But, you know, if you if you ever like peer into like, you know, some of the party politics of the Libertarian Party, which I don't recommend people actually do, uh, <laughs> you should not need to expose yourself to that. Uh, but it's um it, it, i i'm an outsider looking in but it's always like yeah this is just like grosses me out <laughs> i don't know it's just uh yeah i, I it's just like that is like the type of thing where it's like social activism just becomes your identity and then I, I even on like a personal level i've seen what that does to people and it's it's really not great it's it's a it, it's it, no i mean it's 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 a level of obsession you that is deep. not healthy. I'm sorry. I know I'm delayed. I know it's causing problems. Um, no, 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 no. You go. No, no. By all means, you go. Yeah. It's a it's it's a level of obsession that 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 is deeply unhealthy. There's a there there's a. It's almost like anything else, really. Where if you make one thing your whole personality, and and you make one uh-huh. aspect of who you are appear to be or 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 to be actively all that you are, um. Ultimately, that's going to that's going to end up in emptiness. Um, there's there's not enough there to support a personality, and 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 I think the same is true, kind of to the point that you you guys are making that if you make your activist group or whatever your entire social group, you make that your social identity. Um, it's not there's not enough there to support that, and you you end up in a situation where you require you need that to never change because it's it's right. you 
and it's and it's not that's not healthy <laughs> like that's that's part of no. part of talking about i mean we were talking about the nomadic war machine and then and the need for change especially if you're talking about activism um if if you need that to stay concrete you've you've killed it it's over yes and do you mind if i pull this back into a little bit of re-territorialization no have oh, at it have it. at it okay so, so, so I would say that you see this, and I think it's because I think with, with the with the you know taking on the identity, I think this goes back into meaning, and that's been something I've been concerned with, especially when I think we talked about it a bit with the liminality in the liminality LS episode. <clears throat> Sorry, I can't speak. Um, <laughs> you know, something that I've something that I've seen too that I find interesting is that there are the, there's this group of and they've gotten a couple of essays written about them in different papers but the trad rad cats or the or, or the rad cats uh-huh. <laughs> um yeah and it's some of the funniest stuff because you know as someone who is raised catholic who's who's gotten back to going to church I I see it in it in when you're talking about reterritorialization I think it's easy to think that like there's a holistic sense of a re-territorialization. But I think that they're actually a great example of how that's not the case. Because a lot of them, they're not going to mass on a regular basis. They're not really doing a lot of like what are, what, you know, you would expect from people who are practicing the religion, but it becomes aesthetic value. There's a, you know, when, when we talk about re-territorialization, some of it is that it becomes pure aesthetic reflection. So like, you know, the conservative, um, push for like the 1950s mentality it's it's for the aesthetic value that they're that they're um kind of pulling back in to try and assert their own identities in in light of the decentralizing effects of capitalism you know capitalism doesn't care about anything but your money i mean except but your labor or your capital it doesn't care at the end of the day you know about at the end of the day, I don't think capitalism cares about sex, gender, race, etc. Right. I think it's just it's just decoding desire to its base level yes. and then pulling it into the market so that it can so that then desire can attach to whatever is being supplied or right. can start us into a new direction of the market. And you know, when it comes down to that, I, the re-territorialization can be itself just as you know shallow in a veneer as as you know the people who and instead of you know they're they're identifying as rad trad cats or whatever you know you, you get the same with um the le- you know the people that, the, that are wearing the che guevara shirt you know it's yeah. like okay <laughs> right okay. oh yeah you know, you're being, I, there's you're, a you're re-territorialized as a leftist but what's the sincerity in there? Yeah, the, the one of my favorite one of my favorite things that anytime anybody mentions a Che Guevara shirt, I always remember one guy who walked around on my university campus. He had uh, he had the Che Guevara shirt. He wore a beret, and he wore mm. um, he had pins all over his beret that were just uh, statements. He had pins that were just. Did free- we go to the same college? Yeah, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> we might have. I don't know. Um, but it was the free Palestine pin and the, and all this other stuff. And I'm sitting here and I'm looking at, I'm thinking, how much have you read about Palestine? Are you familiar with Mm. the way that Syria and Iran interacted with Palestinians in the 1970s? What's the, what, Mm. how much do you actually give a fuck about this? Or is it just a costume for you? Like what? What does it mean to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, it it it, yeah. it reminds me of that very much. I wanted to say too, uh, episode twenty one 
of The End Times Continue is the last episode we had Hunter on where we spoke about liminality and those other issues as well. I recommend going to listen to that one because um, now that it's come up a couple of times, uh, that there's some context for some of that in there. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. But yes, I, 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 you're, you're saying that as an aesthetic thing. It's almost like, um, do you remember Ace? We did the episode where we were uh, with Carr, where we listened to uh, that episode of uh, "It Could Happen Here." Um, oh yes, yeah. yeah. The where the guy was sitting there playing with a Mosin Nagant the entire right. episode. <laughs> Uh, uh it's a it's oh, a it's particular a, it's rifle yeah it's an old com block rifle and these guys are like leftist types uh, and so he's sitting there uh, playing with an old com block rifle like come on man that's not that's not a battle rifle for today <laughs> it's not no. this is entire the only reason you have a mosin Nagant is for the aesthetic it's not even necessarily because you think it's effective it's for the aesthetic of having the mosin Nagant. Right. It really does. And, you know, you're talking about this, I think you mentioned, like, uh, in terms of, like, meaning, because for a lot of people, it seems like, you know, are you a person that likes an aesthetic? Or are you, like, an aesthetic that's trying to become be a person? You know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because those are very different things. And for a lot of people, it seems like they're, like... Um, this aesthetic and then try to uh, pretend to be a person yeah <laughs> yeah there's a certain kind of there was a lot of argument about this and i think shuan had did a video about it about the about the trad women of tiktok oh yeah yeah she had a good I, I liked her video on that. oh it was great it was really 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 good similarly to her on that yeah it was great yeah, she had a she had a really good take and and a really good sort of opinion on it. But but the other thing too is there's a certain point at which it's like, are you doing this because how much of this is because you want to do it and it actually brings you joy, and how much of it is because it gets you watches, it gets you views on TikTok? Like, where's that line? Yeah, well, and that's well, and that's it's funny because I feel like like our generation that's the first time that's a like a real thing, right? Because like that. For the most part of humankind and uh, human history, unless you were trying to be someone that was very specifically in front of people as like a job, being an actor, model, etc., that was never a question of why you were doing things. Yeah. But now it's like, oh, is it is it because you because we're all like projecting ourselves and creating these digital avatars of ourselves online? How much is anything? How much is anything sincere? Which I gotta say is like. I guess I I brought it in with the idea of sincerity because I guess like, you know, in terms of meaning, I feel like that's hard. That's necessarily in there. But then I guess it's also at the same time, the question of sincerity isn't as much a fact, as much of a like a question for politics because really we're looking at what are the effects most of the time. And maybe I'm wrong there. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm circling back for no reason. But um, yeah, I... I I found it so frustrating when there are just people that want to do fun things and for some reason everyone has to be angry with them yeah. for some reason, like project their anger about it. It's like, okay, if, if the one, if, if these trad wives are do are cooking cookies that then, you know, they pull out of the oven and they're swat stick us cookies. Okay. Like, I get it. <laughs> like, why do you, why do you have to be mad about someone else's thing? 
Like, like it's because ultimately it doesn't, you're not hurting anyone. Why, why does, and, no. and especially the trad wives thing is like, that's, you're hurting the least number of people possible. <laughs> if that's how you're living your life, <laughs> it literally only affects you. I don't know if you guys saw the video of the, the dude who was like really happy about train. On, on yep. going around a few days ago but he was uh he, he's this uh he's this uh, like a pretty young guy but uh-huh. he just loves trains so much and he was like filming himself like he he knows all about trains like what the model is and you can see him like uh, at a train station just waiting and he's just overjoyed and happy and you have all these people like uh it just kind of not everyone i don't overstate it but you have a certain group of people who were just shitting on him he's like oh why are you having you know why are you you know enjoying yourself pretty much uh, and it's just like there's so many people online like that that'll just like use any excuse just like mm-hmm. for someone's like benign happiness to like just uh, shit on them uh, needlessly. <laughs> oh yeah, like, oh. I, know, I mean you know someone sees happiness they're like I, th- I'm gonna go make make them right. I'm gonna make them unhappy unhappy because right. I, I saw that same thing with. Uh, did you guys see the guy with uh, that was making naan? He had made like an oven himself to make naan. The, the Indian bread and the the reaction at first was a bunch of people being like oh look at this stupid white guy that doesn't know what he's doing and it's just like okay like can we like chill <laughs> can, we, can we stop like the guy's excitedly like trying it and the video yeah. is like uh, it's like can we just let people you know enjoy the things they enjoy unless let they the actually man do something problematic or bad then we can yeah. talk about it, but until then, what? well, I mean, even it yeah. goes even deeper than that too, because there's a strange thing. It reminds me of there was the the woman recently who her tweet blew up because she was talking about how stupid it is to have kids and how the world ain- is ending and all this other shit. And it's like, I mean, the world's always ending, though. I mean, there were people still yeah. having kids right after the bombs fell. So like, w- w- there were people who were still having kids in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The world's always the ending. Plague. Yeah, the plague. The world's always ending. Why, 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 why are you, why are you going to make a moral statement about someone's choice uh, to procreate because your perception of the world is so dire? I, I've, I've, I've. It, it, it's, it's as broad as that to me. Where it's like, what, what do you care? Right. <laughs> Because some well, people, the value of their position or their thoughts and their and their uh, their sense of self of of like the choices they make has no value unless they can impose it in on others and make others yes. feel bad about stuff. That's the only. It's a very yeah. Nietzschean thing. Unless they can impose yeah. <laughs> their will or extract like suffering from other people over their ideas, they don't feel there's not a there's not a um, mental surplus. Of, value that they get from their idea so right and also i think to see if they have to see it reflected in other people mm. their choices which is almost almost kind of almost a hegelian thing which is kind of gross yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah. that idea that just like you have to you must um you must validate my position by agreeing with me <laughs> or else the world will come crashing down <laughs> around yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's kind of a poison. That's that's sort of the, the brain virus of democracy, where it's like the the idea only has value if people agree with you. Your 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 position only has yeah. value if enough people agree with you. 
Yeah. Also, going to the point where, like, uh, uh, the, with re-territorialization, it's actually interesting to me. Um, it, it, when we because we were talking before about like how you know with, with culture you see this. Um, do you think, Hunter? Do you think there's a specific uh, type of like? I don't. I'm not talking about a specific culture, but a type of action that creates culture that you think uh, like disrupts like the solidified culture. Like, I guess you would call this counterculture, but even then, I, I think that term is kind of like become like uh, almost <laughs> re-territorialized at this point because everyone, there's a bunch of people who consider themselves uh, counterculture who are just like completely mainstream. But there, you know, there's a certain, do you think there's a certain type of action where people can actually disrupt the current culture to create a new culture? Like, um, and if there is, I don't know, if there is, do you, uh, what type of actions do you think those are? You know, I, so I, I think that it, you know, it's going to be situational. But mm. I would say that I think that it depends on when where you're at. For me, you know, I think that hanging out with a bunch of neoliberals recently has been kind of disruptive of when I'm introducing myself as an anarchist, you know, mm-hmm. to that kind of culture, introducing myself to people um, that uh, are older in this area that have very different ideas than me. <laughs> but, you know, you start, you start spinning the wheels in different directions than they're used to. And sometimes they're, they go along with it. Sometimes they don't. I, I think, um, you know, in, in a culture so incredibly divisive, I think that part of it would be, be like people that aren't, you know, of course, like the extremes, because I'm not going to be mm-hmm. getting along with a lot of your, you know, teen happy communists, nor will I be, right. you know, chilling with the anti-Semites, <laughs> you know, the neo-Nazis. Right. But, you know, I think in some action right now is is in some ways the more rhizomatic choice. And I don't think it's, I think that it's, especially easy to do at a certain for someone then you're probably not that's probably not actually doing that but mm-hmm. you know, in terms of that i think that's the current action is like finding people that still even though you have these great divides across things you're still um hooking yourself up to what is like maybe in a larger group or a larger mm-hmm. set of people in which like they're territorialized in a very different way. And, you know, doing that is at least the start of deterritorializing certain elements, starting a process that, you know, dif- different groups of people can do that in different ways. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if there's any like act that can really itself do that without it without playing into what is the complex of 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 the processes that are much bigger than us individually that are still functioning you know memes for even i think mm-hmm. you know i i was memes memes are sometimes rhizomatic i think at different points and mm-hmm. then they can be arborescent i mean i think right exactly well, um, the dark Brandon meme, I think that was one of the perfect examples. Of that. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you could say it started out rhizomatically on the right wing and then it, and then, um, it, you know, it, the left wing kind of started to pull it over and, and cut some parts of the rhizome. Mm-hmm. And then it gets, and then next thing, you know, we got Joe Biden in front of very red and bl- dark. Yeah. Lighting and <laughs> dark Brandon has ascended. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, you know, I think yeah. looking at different, you know, I think uh, what we have to work with if we're looking to have effects 
works in the larger culture. You know, it depends on if you know some of us are going to go towards more arborescent models. That's, I've always been someone who's kind of tended to join a couple of different groups. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, memes, you know, o- operate in these other aspects. And it's about how you are working the different forces that are at that you that are in contact with you, you know? And I think that's, right. that's the dimension that always has to be looking at how viral too these, your actions can be. I think, um, you know, like 3d printing that I've, I've found that stuff so fascinating. And I think that's going to be really important because oh, yeah. it is, it's one of those things that, and I know that there are capital costs of, to it, of course, and certain, certain degrees of knowledge that are important, but you know, it's one of those things where you can, there is nothing that will stop you know dean certain people from dean or you know friends or whatever from working in that area and yet that's still one day hey at a black lives matter protest they have weapons that they were able to print in their basement right. yep you know uh, well, that the, kind yep. of stuff is viral. which is the goal that stuff yeah. is viral and it's a viral politics that i think is going to be what's determining the long-term future now what the long term is i think that's like 100 years i think it's past my lifetime unless we yeah. get working on this immortality which i am all about at least a couple <laughs> of years would be wonderful um but you know i think the viral politics is going to be the real grounds that in individuals and smaller groups are going to be working with because that's where you can work in imitation, right? The, the mm-hmm. repetitions that you send across different rays of people, the online different subgroups, that's going to be what's, what has a larger effect than what you individually or even by a group can have. Right. Specifically on the 3d printing uh, uh, topic, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the rebels in uh, Myanmar. Uh, Myanmar, they, Myanmar. Yes, they were doing yeah. that in mass, weren't they? Yes, they still they are. I yes, just saw that. Um, I saw that. Uh, Jake, uh, Jake, is Hanrahan his last name? I always forget. But the guy from Popular Front. He was. Um, mm-hmm. He just recently posted oh, a video awesome. where they are they are three D printing bomblets and dropping them from like commercially available like DJI drones. Um, oh my God, that's. It's, awesome. it's 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 amazing. They're fighting a military yeah. junta with three yeah. D printed yeah. weapons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and that's why, like you know, what a form of if you want to talk about like international action, I I think that you know Starlight was one example of like how you'd have how you had have big high capital intensive ways of assisting in what are global con con um, conflicts. But let's think if like. If there was some way, if we had been thinking, if groups had been thinking, I'm not, it's not like any blame is to anyone, but I don't think people thought about this, but like, what if those printers had been, if we, you know, people had thought, huh, maybe in Iran, if that had been there, you know, a year or two ago, this, what happened with the protests in Iran is fundamentally changes fundamentally what, what that state looks like today, because there's no way that that didn't, that that wouldn't have come up. Maybe it wouldn't have, you know, toppled the revolutionary guard, but it would have shown that the revolutionary guard was far less powerful in that country than it is now. It's a, it's a, the, the sort of, it, it actually leads me to, to one point that I wanted to make, which is that I think, I think the sort of decentralized nature of of not just three D printed firearms and, and things like that, but but of um, the the technologies that we're developing generally, um, things like IPFS and 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 the the mesh networking people are doing now, um, 
Uh, can, Dean, can you describe what IPFS is for people who uh, like have, don't have yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the inter generally. the interplanetary file system. This is a uh, this is a a it's it's like HTTP. It's a protocol um, by which files can be almost like with torrenting. Files can be hosted in multiple places and um, accessed from anywhere else on the network. So, for example. If I were to host this show on IPFS, someone else could uh, pin the episode on their node, and if the website gets taken down, or if my copy gets taken down, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. theirs is still up and still accessible at the same address. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a protocol that decentralizes storage such that... Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you wanted to put your IPFS node on on an AWS system, you could. But if that got if that got taken down, someone who's hosting it in their home server, it's still up mm. and it's still accessible to the open internet. Right. Um. So the 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 those kinds of solutions that have been growing in popularity, uh, and and effectively, I, I really wish that Web 3.0 hadn't been jacked by the crypto bros because to me, <laughs> Web 3.0 actually is the decentralized web. And, um, and what they're building there with systems like that, the kind of, I I, I wanted to bring it back to sort of this idea of this rhizomatic development of decentralization and, and the function of the rhizome being more efficient than a strict and hierarchical structure. And it's also more resilient to like critical failure. Yes. Because like, obviously... With is, a, it, uh, go ahead. is it de- is it decentralized or distributed? Because I thought that there was a difference between the two. Um, I mean, technically, maybe decentralized is just like an aspect, and then the system overall is distributed because there yes. are because like every node can can on its own continue without like the connection to the other node. Yeah, maybe that. Maybe that. Okay. Yeah, but, but the other, the, I mean, it's, I've I've seen it described both ways, and I'm not sure what the technical difference between the two would be. I know I used to make the mistake of using decentralized and democratized interchangeably, but that's not correct either. Um. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think the difference with the decentralized, at least I I remember seeing like two maps, and one of it was that like the decentralized, you can have a lot of like singular lines running from one central point or like two central points, but they all will go right back to those central points. And so it sounds like this is distributed in the sense that like each one is independently supportive of its own. And yes, there are a bunch of others that are connected to it, but they are also connected to others as well. So it's like a nested, fully like nested spiders web. Like Right. Yeah, it's more like that. But the, uh, but the, it's I, I I see that as being sort of I mean I I, I sort of like uh, I've made it over and over again but it's the only thing that really sticks in my head that's not you know uh you know twenty to fifty wild boars but the kudzu <laughs> vine uh, the kudzu vine is 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 a more efficient creature than those those hierarchical trees in the south <laughs> it's just yep. um and so the the it, that that to me it, it it speaks to that efficiency of the rhizomatic structure and i'm wondering if i guess i don't know i guess we already touched on a little bit but i just see that as far as information goes maybe it just depends 
on what it is you're dealing with. But as far as information goes, that seems way more, uh, that, that, that seems to be far more, um, that seems to be, uh, preferable to me, I should say. Yeah. And, yeah. And if you're going for like, uh, if your goal is like uh, to be like censorship resistant or something like that, right. I, I it seems very clear to me that like a more rhizomatic, uh, like structure, um, like is better for that because you don't have to go through some central like arborescent like filtering, right? right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, where there, are, where like a single point of failure can just shut the whole thing down, um, like because yeah. it's linear. Uh, whereas something that's rhizomatic, uh, you can maybe you can clip what you know a few um, uh, like node connections off, but that doesn't mean the other nodes can't connect in do- different various ways that can route around it. So mm-hmm. it's it's always like expanding uh, over the points of failure. Um, yeah, I see that though as being kind of the future of of all this stuff, and I'm don't I don't believe mm-hmm. I don't buy into the lie. At least I think it's a lie that um, that centralization is power. Um, yeah, it, to me it seems it seems that decentralization is far far more powerful. Um, especially if you can get a critical mass of, of a critical mass of support for a decentralized solution. Um, mm. I, I, Hunter, I think this also kind of actually goes, uh, uh, I, I sort of wanted to bring up something too, where, uh, I think you've, you've talked about this in the past. I think you even talked about this in, uh, uh, some places where like, uh, you know, and this has been my thought too, like for an, if for anarchism, right. You don't necessarily even need people to be ideologically anarchist. You just need to give them certain amount of choices and freedom and, uh, you know, sort of like these lines of flight where mm-hmm. they can adopt tools for themselves without having any type of like anarchist ideological inclination um, that necess- that uh, just by their actions furthers the anarchist ends without them actually even being ideologically anarchist, whether that be through technology, through just giving them choice, giving them a way out sort of uh, from these, you know, uh, uh, hierarchical control structures. Yeah. Yeah. Cause well, cause it's, it's one of those things I think that, you know, when we're talking about like anarchism or, you know, and others would want their own social movement, but like the thing with capitalism is, you know, we look at it, it's, someone doesn't have to be pro capitalist to be, furthering the capitalist system right? right like that and so i think that especially when looking at you know the future of anarchism or, or the or how do you how do you move to different epochs of change mm-hmm. it has to be something in which like people just by their own actions as you as you mentioned or are, are being are in effect acting anarchistically or 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 right. perpetuating those lines of flight that kind of rebuff against centralized organization my only thing my only thing I think is that I think there, and I kind of, I guess it kind of touches back to like the collective, um, collective action problems mm-hmm. is that it's always my ultimate assessment of human beings is that we are 
we are better to take everyone to be like very self-centered and yes. not aware about 99% of the things that their actions have on the world or the yes. yeah. for that matter yes. because yes. because people people their 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 world is very narrow and i'm not and this isn't like a judgment call i get it like the world there is so my bandwidth is constantly overdrive over like on overdrive and i'm like having mm-hmm. to tell people hey i'm sorry it took me a day to get back to you by text but like I, I can't yeah. even like I walk in the door. I'm like, what what even just happened to me at work? What even <laughs> right. was the day? Yeah. And so I think that like the limitation is always going to be like the, the in moving and making political choices. It has to be simple in a certain yes. way. It has to be a very they have to be like subtle, simple changes, subtle, simple choices that people can make that they see immediate benefit or at least they understand the immediate benefit because if it's complex, like having to join, having to join an affinity group, that's for, that's for people who are very devoted. That's like for people who have thought about this extension and that's going to make about 0.0001% of the population that's going to be doing that, you know? And this is why economics is so hard to get through to people. And I'm not making a judgment call about this because it's Mm -hmm. like not easy to understand. And, you know, I think everyone has like limited bandwidth, as you said, but it, 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 this is why like economics is very challenging is because so, it, sometimes it's very hard to see like the third, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh orders of effect after an action takes yeah. place. You know what I mean? The consequences that may not arise maybe for years after the action is taken, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these things, it's almost impossible to see because it's so uh, muddy um just uh, our perception of these things. So I, I think that's why, like, as you said, it, 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 that is uh it, it needs to be simple. It, it's very like trying to like, you know, map out some type of formula for someone just is not going to be persuasive to people. It's not. No, it, no. And the thing is, oh, I, I was going to say, I was gonna, how many times have we said on this show that, that most people are just concerned with feeding their family? That's all most people are concerned with. Mm-hmm. How do I make mm-hmm. sure that happens? And that's the, that, right. and, and it's not ideology that makes that happen and and it's why people vote for who they vote for they vote for the guy that says i'm gonna make sure you can feed your family yeah no well and, and you know it's funny because like i something with the time aspect i've been thinking a lot too with is that like you know one of the things with the business cycle theory the austrian business cycle theory mm-hmm. and i'm taking full you know going a little left field here but one of the arguments has always been like you know well why is it that if you if you know, you have all these capitalists that are maximizing efficiency and trying to maximize profit. Why is it that we still have business cycles even when, you know, remove the fact that we're not on the gold mm-hmm. gold standard anymore? But, like, why does it happen? And I think it's to the fact that, like, it doesn't matter how many times you're in. There's a crowd effect. And, at the, and there's a crowd effects that we get stuck into no matter how many times we've been through the same. So, like, traffic. Mm-hmm. Everyone in this city of L.A., talks about how they hate traffic. Most, <laughs> yes. Some of them have been in LA and have driven traffic in this traffic for most of their lives, like uh-huh. 30, 40, 50 years. The fact though, is that when in traffic, people are still going to do some of the stupid idiotic things. That they yeah, want because- the people who say hate the traffic, sometimes they're the people who are causing the bad traffic. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because they don't think about how their actions are. Do you guys, right. how much time do we have? Cause I can give you a little, I've, I've done a little oh, social I, ontology of traffic. Yeah. I'm good to go uh, okay. on time. Okay. So what I've realized in LA and a lot of places where traffic is, is 
you you get to standstill traffic, right? And and you mm-hmm. and it starts to move, and you move past, and you're like, well, there must have been an accident, right? Right? There's there's got to be like some <laughs> accident that happened that caused all this. And after being here for a year and a half, I can tell you, no, most <laughs> of the time, it is not because an accident has happened. No, no. Instead, it's because one person, one person had probably been on their phone, not thinking about it, And then they're like, wait, I got to take this exit. So they do a dramatic right turn in front of the person <laughs> behind them. That person then stops. Or, or slows down dramatically. The person behind them slows down dramatically. Well, then that third guy behind them, he's like, wait, now I got to get over there because they went in a little sooner too. Oh my God, I'm going to forget too. And then they do. And then it dominoes effect. Yeah, and then, yeah. and that's how you get into, and that's how me being the person from behind that's now approaching what is like a closing, like you can see that area in traffic when you're approaching the standstill. Oh, and it's just I, a I, sea of a red lights. Yeah, one I've ever, Come up with a term. Come up with a very scientific term here. I call it the um, the event horizon of human cluster fuckery. <laughs> because, because, and the reason is because in that zone, everyone is starting to realize that they that their choices are about to be minimized. So they all yes. start making stupider decisions by being, like, "Oh, I'm going to try and cut this guy." And then this person, and then the person beside them is like well i'm not gonna let this person in because then i'm gonna be a car behind and get to my everything hand. gets reduced down to the stupidest possible action yes choice. because 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 people's time to go a little austrian here their time mm-hmm. horizons are shrinking yeah. their preferences yes. are not therefore the the they're then pushed up against a, a wall of traffic that they're trying to signal to get into and so uh-huh. that's why my solution to traffic i figured it out there's only one way i can do it individually we have but one choice in traffic and it's to give space so what i do now when i when i hit that because i do like every other day i hit that on the way home and i don't even have that bad of a commute compared to most people i throw out 50 to 60 yards in front of me open and Uh i keep that and i slow down to the late to the speed that the next car in front of me which is like i said 50 to 60 yards in front of me i go to their speed and Mm -hmm. by doing that I allow the clearance, you know, in economics again, I'm allowing the other lanes to clear out for the people who were going to change lanes any, anyway, because now they don't have to wait for the guy that's like right next to them to move a little bit or right. slow down a little bit. Fixes it. It's yeah. not a perfect solution. A split second decision that's going to fuck over everyone behind exactly. them. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, it's, yeah. So that's my little social ontology. Traffic. That's how I keep. No, that's that's how great. I how I deal it to keep my own sanity too. Because after a while, I was like, okay, how do people like? How are there not more? Why why are the mass shootings happening in the schools? They should be happening here. Yeah, like, this is where people are more <laughs> angry by ways. far. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's my campaign proposal. Get the mass shootings out of schools and onto the highway. On to- <laughs> <laughs> God. I'll vote for you because <laughs> some of these fucking people need to go. Um, <laughs> We're gonna take the guns out of schools and put them on the freeway for <laughs> the sides of the road. Really up the odds. You thought? <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, uh, that's that is. Two hours and 40 minutes of recording. 
and I need oh, to God, eat what? dinner. <laughs> okay, dude. Oh, you have an eight on <laughs> No, that's fine. It's fine. Um, all right. That that uh, I'm 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 very happy uh, to have had this conversation. I'm happy to have had you back, Hunter. I know Aces as well. Yeah, no. Thank you so much for coming back on, Hunter. And uh, if you have any plugs, any plugs at all, go ahead and uh, throw them out. Yes, please. It's been a real pleasure, guys. Um, I don't have any plugs right now. I might in the future because I, I, I do want to write some. But, of course, I, I, I say that and I don't end up writing what I should. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a true pleasure, guys. Really enjoy talking to you guys about this stuff anytime. It's Let always it's always wonderful to have you on. We'll absolutely have you on again. Yeah, for sure. Sounds great. Yeah. No, thank you so much, Hunter, and uh, have a happy Easter, and happy Easter to everyone else listening. Yes, happy Easter Bye. to everybody. Ace, you have plugs, sir? Uh, just uh, asarcus.substack.com, which I cannot plug on Twitter anymore. Uh, thank oh, you. yeah, they fucking killed that shit. Oh, man, we're going to talk about that in the next episode. Oh, yes. what a mess that is. <laughs> so if you type, if you search Substack in the Twitter search bar, it just comes up with newsletter. Wow. <laughs> that is what happens when you search <laughs> the name. Um, but yeah, then uh, on Twitter it's uh, Ace underscore Arcus. Uh, those are my plugs. Uh, and uh, pacing Joska J O U S K A uh, on Twitter. That's it for me. Um, again, I want to I want to thank you for coming on, Hunter. Yeah, Hunter, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, guys. Y'all have a great one. Have a great one. We'll see everybody next time.